VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, January the 9th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program. We are looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, another solid weekend for the Newfoundland Growlers down at Mary Brown Center. Beat the rival, the trois Rivières Lyon. Probably the coolest logo in the league. Beat them 7-3 and 6-3. But the person that stole the show, especially on Saturday night, and I mentioned this prior to the weekend, was young Seth Hyde, 14 years of age, grade 9 student. So he's been doing all kinds of hockey commentary. But now he gets a chance to sit in the Bob Cole Media Center and call some pro as a color commentator, sitting alongside the growler play-by-play man Chris Ballard. I tuned in for a bit. <laughs> he's terrific. He just is. And so as Mr. Ballard goes on to say, he's witty and quick-witted which is a real requirement when you're doing the color commentary for any type of sport, certainly with ice hockey. So he's articulate. He's a pleasant young fella. And he obviously has a real flair for it and a passion for calling sports, in particular hockey. The future's bright. He got another shout-out on Hockey Night in Canada the other night as well. So pretty cool stuff. Seth Hyde steals the show Saturday night down at the Mary Brown Center. He might be the next Bob Cole. You just never know. Anyway, I thought that was great. Uh... Big thanks and congratulations for everyone out on the West Coast. I know the Avalonese had games over the weekend and the St. John's Junior Hockey League and all kinds of minor hockey, but it was really great to see the West Coast Senior League get back in action. Big crowds uh, for both games that happened over the weekend, so terrific for them. If you want to chime in on what you saw on the ice, you know what to do. All right. It was to this date in history, 1979, that the Boston Bruins hung in the rafters and retired Bobby Orr's famous number four. Number four, Bobby Orr. 1979. So, consensus-ish is that if there was a Mount Rushmore hockey, it would feature Bobby Orr alongside Gordie Howe and then the great one, Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux. Now, it's a fun debate always to be had. I mean, who belongs in those types of... Incredibly important and lauded features. There is no such thing as the Mount Rushmore of hockey, but Bob Yor's jersey hung in the rafters in 1979. And this is a controversial one, and I know I'm absolutely the distinct minority on this one. It's in 1991 that Major League Baseball officially banned Pete Rose from ever entering the Hall of Fame. Of course, he got caught betting on, betting on baseball. Don't think he ever bet on his own team. And, I mean, one of the greatest hitters of all time. He has more hits than anybody else. And Charlie Hustle was a sight to behold on the field and still not in the Hall of Fame where I think he belongs. And I know I'm really in the minority. And speaking of betting on sports, look, I get it. It's popular. I was in a football pool all regular season. Something to keep an eye on. No big money or anything. But the amount of uh, betting advertisement during sports games now is really overwhelming. It really, truly is. It used to be no such thing, necessarily. And now it is the premium go-to advertising dollar and sponsorship minutes when you watch any pro sport. You know, basically it all came to pass with this wave of sporting advertisements when the federal government for the first time ever in this country allowed betting on single games. So that's what you get as a result. One more this date in history. The iPhone was unveiled by Apple CEO Steve Jobs today in 2007. And if people are committed to and loyal to one brand, nothing outweighs the commitment of the Apple customer. They are all in. And Apple is making off like bandits 
on it. Okay, good luck to the folks out at Marble Mountain. Fingers crossed with a, a successful opening on the 11th of this month. That's on Wednesday. I know the skiers, the snowboarders in the area and province-wide, and maybe hopefully outside Atlantic Canada, chomping at the bit to hit the slopes out at Marble. And one more quick story, and this is a lovely, heartwarming story. Coming from Clarenville. I'll say good morning to Wendell Young. Oh, pardon me, Wendell Moore. Wendell lost his wife, Myra, on August the 9th, 2021, at the hospital in Clarenville. She passed at the age of 75. One of her fondest memories, one of her favorite things, was to hear the laughter of children. I, have, I live in a home that backs onto a green space, and like all of you, that sound of kids having fun and the laughter is really something to behold, really quite heartwarming. And as a result, so that Wendell can remember and recall what Myra was so fond of, he's actually building a rink alongside the elementary school in Clarenville, and it's going to be named the Myra Moore Memorial Rink. It's really quite the setup, so all kinds of helpers have been working on doing the wiring so they can have some lights in the play at night. And he goes on to say, Myra was an amazing lady, very quiet and reserved. She was tolerant and forgiving and compassionate and kind and beautiful on the inside and the outside. Anybody she was ever near who got to know her at all knows that she had a presence that was unforgettable and she will be remembered forevermore at the Myra Moore Memorial Rink. It's a beautiful setup, so congratulations to Wendell. He's going to love it, as will all the young people in particular get a chance to lace it up and play for free on the Myra Memorial Outdoor, the Myra Moore Memorial Rink, Clarenville. That's a great story. Love that one. All right, so as you heard in the newscast, and of course you'll hear it in every newscast today, for the first time this winter, a bit of winter weather headed our way here on the Avalon Peninsula. Wake up this morning for the first bit of snow that stuck, period. And here it is the 9th of January. So we've done very, very well. I see people out there posing the question whether or not you're ready for a storm. I don't know how much preparedness there is to do. Hopefully you've had a chance to put on your snow tires, your winter tires. But here comes our first bit of snow. I don't know, maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 centimeters. Blustery conditions, as we're all painfully familiar with here on the Avalon. But here comes a little bit of winter weather. You would imagine with zero snow days leading up to this. If the forecast holds true for the remainder of today and into tomorrow morning, you may indeed see a snow day at the K-12 schools here in this region. So maybe some prep today just in case the forecast holds true. Anywho, let's go. You know, it's not that it's just when they have the cold winter weather and a snowstorm approaching, but the thought and the conversation surrounding homelessness is really quite something. Can you even imagine not having anywhere safe in out of the elements, somewhere warm, to lay your head during these cold months? And especially on nights where we're going to have some stormy conditions. So we can take that on if you're so inclined. And I know there's lots of good people and good organizations working on that front. But just yesterday in the grocery store, and not eavesdropping, couldn't help but hear these two older ladies talking about the prices of everything they encountered. Both had flyers in their hands, and I could hear them discussing whether or not they should buy X, Y, or Z. And they're not alone. People are talking about this and facing these types of decisions every time you walk in to a grocery store, which leads us down the path, once again, of food insecurity, inflationary pressures, and what we see in the store. Now, whether people want to refer to some of the perceptions surrounded price gouging, which I don't think is as as real as some people feel and think and say it is, but the prices are out of this world, as we are all aware of. I see other media outlets picking up on this, and I think there's a big conversation to be had with how the province can indeed deal with food insecurity right here on the local scene. Now, they say that we have indeed hit some targets with doubling food production in a couple of areas over the last number of years. 
okay, I mean, I suppose we'll have to take your word for it, even though I don't see it and feel it. But when we look at the hydroponics and the greenhouse concept and backyard farming and homesteading, it is a worthwhile question to understand exactly what's going on with the 21,000 square meter production facility that was Canopy Growth up on the White Hills here in St. John's. It's a little bit confusing to understand exactly what's going on with that facility. Now, remember, there was some controversy back in 2018 when Canopy committed to pay more than $24 million over five years to a numbered company that owned the land. They're still paying the lease. It's a $90 million facility. It's fully set up and ready to go. Can you imagine the number of jobs we could create and the amount of produce or whatever that we could grow inside the Canopy Growth Facility? Canopy has pretty much shed its ownership of certainly all the retail outlets in this province. They sold a lot of their production facilities a couple of years ago. So what is actually going on with that site? It's a 12 acres, 21,000 meter, square meter production facility. It could be the guiding light in establishing more and more hydroponic opportunities to grow year-round a variety of things in this province. But I'm glad we're picking up on that. And remember back in 2017, when the province signed what is arguably one of the dumbest contracts of all time, this safe and secure supply with canopy growth, which would have afforded them some one, or pardon me, $40 million in abatements for the remittances. So basically, cut them a $40 million break. You know, to secure the supply of marijuana, which was never going to be a problem. That came and went, and of course, canopy took off. They paid us the money they owed us. Some, I think it was $1.9 million. It hasn't cost us a cent, but that contract was... <laughs> inexplicable at the time and remains so today anyway want to take it on let's go and inside the world of food the amount of food wasted at the retail level and in our own homes unfortunately the conversation surrounding the best before date versus an expiry date we can get into all of that and the restaurant owners out there they're facing a pretty tough slog this winter by the looks of it we had a good tourism season and hopefully they did very well but with the input costs, whether it be from cooking oil to lettuce, which saw a 400% spike based on a supply shortage issue and a bug that was ruining the crops on California, the whole issue surrounding food waste is something that's intriguing to me and it's troubling at the exact same time. Also, I'll throw this in there because I think this is fairly controversial and maybe will provoke a call. It's not based on the fact that the opposition critic for finance, Tony Wakeham, has talked about some of the unnecessary, what he deems to be unnecessary taxes, and a focus on carbon tax and what have you, but the sugar tax. Has it actually changed anyone's behavior, what they buy? You know, even though the sugar tax has been erroneously applied to things which we were told were exempt, is it really changing people's pattern of what they buy, what they consume? That's the intended goal. That's what government says is the rationale behind the sugar tax. But is it anything more than just a revenue stream? Because how are we going to measure how effective it has been? I suppose we'll be able to get updates from the industry about how their sales have looked for their full leaded pops versus some of the diet options and things that are exempt. But I'm not so sure about this one. You know, people will refer to it as nothing but a tax grab, and it's incumbent on government to show us how it is working, if indeed it is working, and people are buying less of the heavily sugared bevies that are out there. And of course, even some of the confusion surrounding some options that have a lot of sugar that are exempt versus something right alongside it on the same shelf in the same cooler that is exempt with less sugar. It's just been bizarre. But if that's changing your buying habits, we'd like to hear about it this morning. Okay, stick with some dollars and cents and what it's meant for some of the services that we rely on. This case, cab drivers. Now, of course, with the price of fuel and the cost of insurance, and they're all 
pegged into this facility insurance, average cost to operate a taxi cab is between $8,000 and $12,000 per year only on insurance. It's extraordinary. In the big scheme of insurance, Newfoundland and Labrador has the highest rate of claims as, as compared to anywhere else in Atlantic Canada. More claims, more payouts, higher premiums. So in the cab business, this number comes all the way back from 2016, which I don't know why. That's the most recent numbers we can find. And I, someone else did the legwork for me on this one. So in 2016, they paid uh, about $2.8 million in premiums, but paid out $5 million in claims. So the obvious relationship between claims, payouts, and premiums is right there for all to see. But here's some of the numbers even come from just Jiffy Cabs, one outlet alone, and their owner and operator, Chris Hollett, who we've had on this program. We welcome another call from Chris this morning, if he's so inclined. They had about 80 cars on the road in 2019, down to about 55 today having a hard time finding any drivers. So the cabs are there, but the drivers are not. So they say the average wait time to be picked up between Sunday and Thursday is around 5 to 10 minutes, or as we say in the taxi business, right away. But it's in the peak opportunities of Friday and Saturday night. People are waiting a long, long time. And they hear it, they know it, they understand it. It's not like they don't want to service the community. More calls, more cabbies, more money. But that cab shortage issue is real. And, of course, in the world of insurance, Dave, let's go ahead and uh, invite Minister Studley on. I really want to understand more about how this digital validation insurance program is actually going to lower the numbers of people driving without insurance. So somewhere between 3 and 7% of the vehicles on the road are uninsured. But how exactly will this do anything about it? If it's a good idea, great. If it's going to see a long-term impact with a reduction in the number of uninsured and then eventually uninsured claims, and maybe reduce the number of claims, period. I don't know how that will work. But if it has an appreciable impact on lowering my premiums, which I won't hold my breath, but I'd like to understand exactly how that works and how it's supposed to work. All right, changing tune. I read a story this morning about they're going to change the way they train police officers, in particular in northern Ontario to begin with, but throughout that province, about how police investigate and deal with victims of sexual assault. It's the most underreported crime in the country, so says Stats Canada. It's hard to know exactly what the numbers are and exactly how they arrive at that determination, but we know it's a problem. Now there's going to be a program led by the judiciary itself, not the Department of Justice in this province, for mandatory training for provincial judges when dealing with sexual assault cases. It's a good idea. It really is. We've seen some glaring examples where some stereotypes and some myths surrounding sexual assault have made its way into evaluations and comments in judicial rulings regarding sexual assault. There's an estimation that one in five women in the country will at some point in their life be sexually assaulted. The ability to come forward in a comfortable, understanding, compassionate setting is going to be key. You know, we can talk about whether or not there should be a standalone court for sexual assault, like much like we've done with some drug-related cases in this province. But it's better for the, uh, for the community. It's better for society if more and more victims feel like they can and will come forward. You know, whether it be how it's handled inside the court. And there's always going to be the adversarial system between the lawyers representing either side. But this sounds like a good idea. Just, just think of it. Even if you, not you or anyone belonging to you has ever been a victim or involved in a sexual assault case, if people who are committing these crimes are not taken to task, they're further emboldened, become potentially more and more dangerous, and the issues and the prevalence of sexual assault can only grow 
if we don't have people willing to come forward. So this mandatory training sounds like an excellent idea, and it will be led by the judiciary itself, not by Minister Hogan and his department. So Chief Judge Robert Robin Fowler is working towards finalizing the education plan. Sometime this fall, they'll begin the mandatory training, which sounds like a good idea to me. And talk about standardized stuff, the mandatory training. You know, I know there's a fellow who had a hard time with Marine Atlantic trying to get passage for he, his wife, and his service dog. He's a uh, veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, has PTSD, and of course he says he can't do anything without his service dog. It's a pretty common story across the country. So the gentleman's name is Jean-Guy and his wife Anne Dubuc, and their dog, the service dog's name Posey. So there was all kinds of back and forth, and Marine Atlantic saying there wasn't sufficient documentation to prove that the animal had completed training and is a service dog, as opposed to, you know, believe it or not. There's people out there that fake documentation for a service dog, which is pretty despicable, to say the very least. So on this front, if there's confusion, the exact same documents that the uh, family had presented to Air Canada and United Airlines, no questions asked, they took it, and Posey was a service dog, and on they went. Marine Atlantic eventually relented on this one, and they had been granted passage, but he wants a formal apology and what have you, and I'll leave that, leave that up to you as to what you think about that. And if uh, Jean-Guy, if you're listening, we welcome your call this morning, sir. That's where things like standardized training and standardized documentation. So we don't have this confusion and standoffs. If there is a document that proves completed training by the trainer, a national accreditation that comes in a one-size-fits-all, this is a service dog, the end, as opposed to people's ability to fake it. So whether it be with a standardized vest and or a legal document, proving the training, because we can't see these and hear these stories. It's happened several times here in the province, whether it be access to a government building. I remember out in Cornerbrook, there was a fella and his service dog were thrown out of the mall, even though they had the documentation. So for people in the public sphere to understand what the service dog is, what it means, and how to look at the documentation to avoid those types of incidents or instances... (laughs) Could be great. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's get it going for this Monday morning. I do see that the province of uh, the province and the Department of Health Community Service has entered into a formalized agreement with the Newfoundland and Labrador Medical Association. Don't know a whole, whole lot about it at this moment in time, but it's all about establishing activities, benchmarks, goals, policies to deal with the shortcomings in family medicine. A lot of what I've heard so far really feels like just putting all the incentives and the policies that the government's put forward and the issues that have been brought to light by the NLMA into one living, breathing document, a guiding document that will hopefully see us do better there. It's all under the umbrella of recruiting and retaining, but I suppose it's a good thing if it comes up with the results. Because we do know the gap in family care, you know, access to primary care and or the establishment of more and more collaborative care clinics and the need and the want to recruit and retain more and more family doctors will go a long way for people's own health and well-being and for the bottom line, for the money we spend on health. Anyway, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You can follow us there. Our email address is openline at VOCM.com. Okay, just one. Here's David. He says, There was no guarantee of securing local production at legalization. This is the cannabis. Given the unknowns at the time, there was a valid concern of centralized production, leading to NL importing all product. The cannabis deal eliminated that risk while adding no risk to taxpayers. Well, the fact of the matter is, with canopy not here, there was no shortage of supply. The concern inside the legalized business was the price and the quality. So even though Canopy didn't grow a single bud, 
the weed shops haven't gone unsupplied. So I get the point, except that's not what the outcome was. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, let's have a great show. That only happens when you call. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, every now and then we put callers and others onto the Public Legal Information Association of Newfoundland and Labrador, of course, known by the acronym of PLEAN, to get some advice from a practicing attorney when, of course, price point and cost of securing legal advice is very dear and not available to many. Join us on line number two is the team lead and legal support navigator with the Journey Project at PLEAN. That's Janet Lee. Oh, let me get my clicker out here. Uh, good morning, Janet. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm great, thank you. And thank you for having me this morning. I'm happy to do it. You know, we made uh, some mention of issues like, for instance, new training program for police officers in northern Ontario, mandatory training for judges in this province regarding hearing sexual assault cases. And I know the plan deals with a variety of things, but what specifically is under the umbrella of the Journey Project? Absolutely. So the Journey Project was formed as a collaborative initiative between CLEAN and the Newfoundland and Labrador Sexual Assault Crisis and Prevention Center back in 2017 to strengthen justice supports for survivors of sexual violence in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, In the past five or six years, we've grown pretty substantially. We started as a team of one and currently have seven full-time staff who support survivors of any form of sexualized violence, but we've also recently expanded to support people who have experienced any form of intimate partner violence as well. So as our team grows, so does the services that we offer and the people that we can support. And what that means or what that can look like for people who reach out to us is access to support from our team of legal support navigators that are based in St. John's, Cornerbrook, and Happy Valley Goose Bay, as well as the option to get a referral to private practice lawyers here in Newfoundland and Labrador um, to get some free legal advice specifically related to their experiences of sexual violence or intimate partner violence. You know, I know at Plain, whether it be uh, involved with seniors and the law, there's all sorts of referral services that goes on at Plain. Why why was it important and what led to the want to create this partnership between the NLSA CPC, the Sexual Assault uh, mm-hmm. Group uh, Prevention Centre, and Plain? Because what's the unique feature of this portion of the criminal justice system that made this partnership required? Absolutely. I would say that both organizations were hearing about similar issues at PLEAN, primarily about a lack of access to justice, specifically for survivors. And then for the Sexual Assault Center, um, who runs a you know, 24-7 support and information line for survivors, hearing for decades about the lack of support, a lack of trauma-informed responses, both within the legal system and outside of it, and really wanting to increase their access to justice through access accurate information, and that kind of specific legal advice that only lawyers can provide. So PLAN and the Sexual Assault Center had been partnering for years on different initiatives, presentations, awareness campaigns, outreach and education. Um, And then when the opportunity became available to kind of solidify the partnership and form a free legal advice service for survivors, this was really incredible. Um, There are other programs like ours across Canada, um, but we are unique in the country in that it was a collaborative initiative between two distinct nonprofits. 
Um, and so we're really working towards furthering the mandates of both distinct organizations that increasing access to justice that PLEAN strives to do, as well as that kind of trauma-informed support for survivors from a survivor-centered perspective that the Sexual Assault Center has been offering for over 40 years. I'm not so sure this is your ballywick, but, you know, we talk about sexual assault being one of the most underreported crimes in the country. And there's Mm -hmm. lots of research, whether coming from Stats Canada or other academic institutions. Are you folks working towards trying to eliminate or is that just the overall, I guess, outcome goal that would be part of this partnership is to reduce some of the barriers or hurdles or intimidation that people may feel with coming forward? Are you dealing with specifics there or, you know, once people get in the system, a guide to how to report to police? And while we'll get into third party reporting, are you getting down into the weeds to try to figure out how to deal best with the hurdles that individuals feel. Absolutely. I would say that, like, you know, like each person's experience with an of sexualized violence is unique, so, too, is their journey through different legal systems. And so here at the Journey Project, we're not here to, you know, force anyone to make any sort of decision that they are not interested in pursuing. Um, and that includes legal options like reporting to the police or not, or filing a complaint with their workplace or not, um, or filing a complaint with some other sort of institution or quasi-legal process. What we're here to do is provide accurate information so that each survivor can make the best decision for themselves with the situation that they've experienced or the incident that they've experienced and what their kind of personal and individualized resources are. Um, And so from a prevention perspective, we absolutely do training options around, uh, specifically around sexual harassment in the workplace. Um, We're partnering again in 2023 with Music NL to offer Project Soundcheck, which is about checking in and preventing sexual harassment, assault, and violence, um, specifically at uh, festivals, events, and community gatherings um, that really focuses on um, decreasing bystander apathy and the tendency to ignore incidents of sexual violence in large group situations. And then, of course, there's lots of incredible work being done at the Sexual Assault Center around prevention initiatives as well. So with the Journey Project, our specific focus is in offering that individualized support to survivors who are navigating or thinking about navigating the legal system from that survivor-centered perspective. You you mentioned uh, a bar setting, for instance, and I think it's called the Angela Program. You use that name when you're talking with the bartender to give that person the heads up that you are in a precarious spot. So it's one thing when we talk about, you know, what might happen in public and face-to-face. Quite another with the advent of online dating and the way sexual harassment manifests itself online. What do people need to know about that? Because people end up in these situations where all of a sudden the sextortion kicks in and they've made one false move and the next thing you know they've been victimized and stalked online. How different is it and does the Journey Project address that front? Absolutely. So one of the things or the first thing that I would say is that when it comes to interactions and when it comes to, for example, I think one of the things you might be referencing is the distribution of intimate images or sending sex or whatever kind of different language folks are using in different circles, that it isn't necessarily illegal. It isn't a false move to send an intimate image of yourself between two consenting parties. What is illegal 
And what should never be done is distributing someone else's images without their consent. And so a lot of the times what we can kind of hear or talk about in different circles and in community is that if only this person hadn't sent that image, if only the person hadn't sent that image of themselves. But instead, I would like to flip the script on that conversation and, you know, point out that what's actually illegal is the sending on or forwarding of that image to other folks. So if that is something that any of your listeners this morning or at any point um, have experienced, I would absolutely encourage them to reach out to us at The Journey Project to chat about their legal options. What's third-party reporting? Because most people think that if I don't have it in me to present at, say, for instance, RNC headquarters, and I can't Mm -hmm. summon that courage or the want or whatever the right word is, I'm not sure. What does third-party reporting mean inside the world of sexual assault? Sure. So here in Newfoundland and Labrador, because third-party reporting is a phrase or a title that has been used kind of in different places to mean different things, For us here um, at the Journey Project, we partnered um, with the RNC back in 2019 to offer um, or to pilot third-party reporting in our community. So what that can mean or look like is that individuals who have experienced sexual assault um, who are in or around St. John's, because I got to highlight, Patty, that we are a provincial service when it comes to our free legal advice and the, the work that our legal support navigators do, but there are some programs that are specific to particular regions. And so third-party reporting is specific to our St. John's office because there's only two of us here that can take reports and they have to be done in person at our St. John's office. But what this ultimately means or looks like that if someone meets the eligibility criteria of this pilot project, they connect with us here at the Journey Project and they can provide a report to us about an incident or incidents of sexual violence that they themselves experienced. Um, And then we anonymize the report so there's no information about the person, about the survivor who's making the report. Um, But the information about the incident or incident is then passed on to the CASA unit, the Child Abuse and Sexual Assault Unit, at the RNC. And part of the inspiration for this with us here at the Journey Project was really about wanting to provide survivors with another option, with kind of a third option about whether or not they wanted to navigate the criminal justice system. If the RNC sees a pattern in the reports received or would like additional information from the survivor about the particular incident or or incidents, they'll come back to us here at the Journey Project, not the survivor because they don't have their information, um, so that we can connect with the survivor and see if they did want to come forward to make a more formal report. So there is specific eligibility criteria around that, and anyone who's listening who's interested in learning more about it can certainly reach out to us at one 722 um, We're all over social media, or you can email us at support at journeyprojectnl.com, and I can certainly share additional information about that with anyone who's listening. Terrific. Just a couple of quick ones before I run out of time. Any thoughts on the uh, new announcement from the provincial government that the, the judiciary itself is going to create an education program for mandatory training for provincial court judges when dealing with sexual assault cases? Absolutely. Um, was very excited to hear this news. This is certainly something that the Journey Project has been advocating for since our inception in 2017. Very 
um, eager to learn more about the logistics of the education plan and how that's going to move forward. And if there's going to be any additional talk about legislating the training to ensure that it's mandatory um, for all the judiciary moving forward. So I was very excited to hear about that announcement and, of course, eager to hear more information. It's important to note that, you know, one training program or one training session isn't necessarily going to eradicate sexual violence in our communities or necessarily take away all of the myths and misconceptions that can exist around sexualized violence. But what it can be is yet another step forward um, in supporting survivors and decreasing the secondary wounding and harm that they experience within different institutions. Well, how about your thoughts on a standalone court for sexual assault, just very much like what we're doing with drugs? You know, there's always going to be the adversarial system. It's one of the cornerstones is a uh, being represented to the best of that lawyer's ability, whether it be representing the Crown and or the person who's been alleged to have committed a crime. Is there the real distinct need for this standalone court or would that even change anything? I think that is certainly something that a lot of advocates have spoken to and spoken for over the years. I think that sexualized violence is such a unique experience um, and such a unique crime to have committed against a particular person or persons. And so any way that we can kind of bring in more trauma-informed, more individualized legal support to survivors as they're navigating the criminal justice system is certainly something that I would support. Nice to have you on the show this morning, Janet. Thanks for time. Thank you so much, Patty. You take good care. The same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Janet Lee, team lead and legal support navigator with the Journey Project at Playin. Important stuff, to say the least. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to Happy Valley Goose Bay. The mayor is George Andrews. He's in the queue, and then it's you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to his worship, the mayor of Happy Valley Goose Bay. That's George Andrews. Mayor Andrews, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Grand today. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, good, good. Patty, just wanted to uh, call in and uh, just uh, tell the residents and, and tell folks about uh, some of the great things that are happening here in Happy Valley Goose Bay. This year is our 50th uh, year of incorporation, and uh, we're kicking it off with uh, with a great event. We have the Montreal Canadiens alumni coming to town here uh, this weekend, and uh, it's going to be great, and it's going to be followed up uh, quickly after by uh, the Labrador Winter Games and on and on and on. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll have a f- uh, very fun-filled, exciting year of activities to celebrate uh, celebrate the milestone for our community. Uh, this weekend, we'll see the, uh, the Montreal Canadiens alumni come to town. we get a couple of Newfoundland boys, Terry and Darren, will be up uh, with the team, along with some others like uh, Murray Wilson and uh, Pierre Dagno, uh, Brian Scrublin, and a few others. Uh, they'll be playing uh, a couple of great uh, games uh, Saturday evening at 7 and uh, again on Sunday at 2 p.m. at the arena. Uh, tickets are available. Uh, they're uh, pretty uh, close to uh, the sold out for Saturday evening, uh, but uh, still some available and some for Sunday. A couple of other opportunities that were available as well as uh, as uh, bidding for uh, to be an assistant uh, coach or even a player. So uh, some VIP opportunities. Uh, the VIP opportunities are all taken for Saturday, but still available for Sunday. So we're looking forward to a, uh, a great weekend of fun. And uh, Montreal, of course, is uh, one of the uh, one of the original six and 
quite popular, especially here in the big land. In no doubt. Uh, and this is all to commemorate what? I probably missed the most important part of the conversation yeah. so far. I apologize. No, it's our, it's our, we're celebrating up here this year, our 50th year of incorporation as a community. Oh. We've been around a fair bit uh, longer, but uh, we were separate communities. And now uh, we, uh, we're celebrating the 50th uh, mark and uh, a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of things have happened in our community over the years, but it's nice to be able to celebrate and uh, and get some good news and and uh, celebrate a, uh, an achievement uh, like we've got here, which is 50 years of uh, of being incorporated as a community here in Labrador. Terrific! And I look uh, the good news and the positive stories really make my day much easier but of course the reality is there's all sorts of issues that are across the province and certainly in your community have we seen any forward momentum and any positive signs regarding the transient population because the stories have been really quite scary you know the numbers of people living on the trail network uh, this year versus years ago have grown exponentially any positive signs whether it be for root cause issues uh, and I know there's committee struck to deal with it in the long term you know people clamoring for heightened police presence but what's going on what can you tell us yeah, Patty, it's uh, like, you know, right now we see a decrease, and that's predominantly because of the weather. I mean, I'm sitting here in the parking lot. It's 22 below. The wind is a low drift now heading down uh, the, the parking lot here. So, you know, temperature. But there are still uh, some folks that uh, that are, are in our community in a transient uh, situation. Uh, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes. Uh, you know, uh, the ex- there's an action team that's formed. There's a uh, an acute response team that's formed. Um, the issues and uh, how, you know, they're going to be solved, it's, it's it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so complex. I mean, it's, it would be very nice and, and, and wonderful if it, if it was a simple switch and uh, we could do whatever we need to do to throw at, at the problem. But it's, uh, it's so complex. Um, you know, it's, it's difficult. Um, it's going to take a lot of different things, I think, to, uh, to make a change. Uh, you know, our, our municipality, as a municipality, we're not really uh, uh, resourced, I guess, to, uh, to deal with uh, the social service side of issues and, and you know, housing issues and things like that so you know we play an important part but uh, you know we're huge dependently upon uh, upon other levels of uh, other levels of government and other community members to uh, to play so you know uh, optimistically yeah absolutely I, I you know we're working towards some changes uh, you know realistically what we're seeing you know because we round we, we wrapped up this uh, past summer it was probably uh, you know the the greatest challenge that we've had so you know we remain optimistic that some of the work that we can do through uh, through the winter will make a change for uh, for next year it was interesting to you know use that word when people were reacting to comments coming from members of your community of course public safety and their want to see a heightened police presence is real and then the, the pushback was we're criminalizing addictions and mental health when you can kind of do both at the same time with the focus on the community side the focus on systemic issues the focus on social supports but of course people need and want to feel safe in the community have we seen more police presence because I'm not in the business of policing or criminalizing these types of health-related matters. I'm much more on the health side of it. But, of course, public yeah. safety, if you live there, that's got to be part and parcel with how you think. And it doesn't make you a bad person to hope that your children are okay, for instance, out beating around the, the neighborhood. So have we seen more police in the, in the community? Well, we did, in the sh- from a short-term perspective, we saw some uh, some response. Uh, the province uh, uh, kicked in. Uh, they gave us some funding uh, to be able to bolster our uh, municipal enforcement Um for the short term amount of time we tried to uh, we tried to find uh, you know a, a qualified uh, individual or individuals that could come and give us a hand in that short uh, time frame uh, that wasn't possible so what we did then is we we went out and we we hired a security company uh, not to interact with them 
the folks, but to be able to identify, um, you know, activity and then report that activity to the to the RCMP. Um, the challenge is, is that you know uh, we see a lot of things in our community over the you know this past few several months uh, that have uh, caused some great concerns. We've had young kids that have been accosted. Um, you know, we've uh, on, on our bike trail, our bike trail between the uh, school that we have and uh, a local uh, restaurant, Tim Hortons. You know, where kids go for lunch. Um, we've seen kids. So, you know, we've had to have a security patrol on during the lunch hour and stuff. We've seen uh, you know break-ins. We've seen cars being uh, uh, banged down and people being uh, accosted in their cars at particular businesses. Uh, our business community, some of the business community, has been uh, just overran with um, with issues and. Uh, you know, trying to deal with them makes it very difficult for them. Some safety issues around them businesses uh, in, you know, one, one one's a gas station and, uh, you know, the activity, some of the activity like smoking around the tank vents and things. And, you know, so the community felt uh, very unsafe. And I mean, I, I just think that, you know, what we've seen now is just a... Uh, uh, you know, a reduction in the activity because of the, the temperatures. Uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, we've seen it. Uh, the RCMP uh, put some extra patrols on for a period of time. Um, I've been advised that they have continued, but I, I don't know if, uh, you know, there's there's extra members like there were back in the fall uh, on now. So I haven't had that information from the RCMP yet. But, uh, you know, it's uh, the public safety side, yeah, it's, it's very real. If you read uh, anything, you know, from a social media perspective uh, on on our community, uh, you would definitely, uh, you know, be uh, be well versed in terms of what uh, what's going on. So we did reach out. We've reached out. We understand that you know enforcement can't solve the issue, but from a public safety and an activity perspective, that's where the community's concern was, and you know we address with uh, with the province and with the RCMP. So uh, you know it's it's just gone down now uh, because of because of weather, and uh, you know I think we'll see uh, that resurgence again in the in the spring when the temperatures start to warm and we see more people come to the community. Yeah, one of the long-term issues of uh, Minister Abbott has announced will be a, the building of a 70-bed facility, which will indeed help, but that's down the road. Uh, last one, we all hear about housing crunches, whether it be here in the metro region and certainly in Labrador. The issues surrounding whether it be uh, affordable housing for seniors in particular, again, not an easy flip a switch and all of a sudden everything is solved because it's a bit more complicated than that when we talk about what affordable housing really means. What's the status of some of the conversations? Because that is glaringly absent in your part of the province. Yeah, so you know, we, we saw a uh, a huge decrease in uh, in affordable housing here, especially with the Muskrat Falls project, where uh, you know rooms and houses were renting for thousands of dollars a month and, and apartments. So you know, we we still we see we still see that elevated uh, uh, cost for uh, you know housing. So uh, we uh, you know we as a community have been working on some things, and we're hoping to very shortly uh, in the near future here to make uh, to make some kind of uh, uh, push into uh, helping that. Uh, the other thing that we saw is that, you know, Newfoundland Labrador Housing had a project a number of years ago that uh, allowed folks to uh, build residences, uh, uh, and as long as the rents were, were maintained at lower levels, and I think that project was for a 10-year commitment. After that, uh, you know, the, the units could be uh, repurposed and put uh, at, at, you know, market value rents, I guess. So uh, we've seen some of those, uh, that inventory in town of, of, of what we would call affordable housing or housing that was targeted to affordable housing uh, put 
uh, now their 10-year thing is up. So uh, we've seen some transition in that. One of the other things that we see in our community, uh, Patty, is the transition of housing to Airbnbs and rentals, which, you know, takes uh, availability out of uh, out of the, the local market. So, yeah, definite challenge uh, in terms of our community, um, something that the, the town is working on uh, with, you know, again, other partners. And there are other, uh, there are other agencies and uh, uh, groups within the community that have uh, have units that uh, are targeted to, uh, you know, uh, the affordable housing, uh, 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 I guess, the affordable housing market and uh, for seniors. And that. But, uh, yeah, so we're, we're hopefully, um, you know, we're working towards uh, being able to uh, make a little small dent, I guess, in that uh, and, uh, you know, working with other partners to see what other opportunities are available. And one of the big things that come to mind is, uh, you know, a senior's uh, housing. And, uh, you know, we have uh, folks up here that uh, are very interested in, in partnering. So, you know, if there's a, any business out there that's uh, interested in uh, in investing in uh, seniors' housing or anything, right, uh, by all means, contact our community development officer. Just to leave on a positive note, Mayor Andrews, give the folks the details, whether it be the Habs Alumni Game or other celebrations regarding the 50th anniversary of incorporating Happy Valley Goose Bay. Yep, so we're really pleased. Our community, we have a community that's working uh, tremendously hard. The Montreal alumni thing will kind of kick off our uh, our year-long celebrations. And, of course, the Labrador Winter Games will follow in, in March, uh, along with other many, many other events. Uh, if, by chance, any group or organization has an event that they would, they would like uh, included into our calendar, reach out to uh, Greg uh, Osmond, our community development officer, or reach out to a town office and get that included because we're really, really uh, you know happy and we're really looking forward to a great year of, uh, of celebration and, uh, you know, community activities and things like that that keeps, uh, keeps folks uh, in our community busy. So, uh, yeah, by, by all means. And thanks very much, Patty. Appreciate the opportunity. Happy to do it, Mayor Andrews. Have a great week. Yeah, you too as well. Take care. Bye-bye. As Happy Valley Goose Bay Mayor George Andrews. All right, let's take a break. So, of course, the country was thrilled to see what went on at the most recent World Junior Championships. Canada, back-to-back wins, first time since 2009. That was the heels of us winning five in a row. And, of course, it brings on a different feeling and flair when you've got a local. Zach Dean from Mount Pearl has a gold medal around his neck. His grandfather, Bullet Bob Dean, Memorial Cup Championship, back with the Hamilton Red Wings. So, Zach comes by honestly, as they say. Bob Dean after this, don't go away. Welcome back to the program. As advertised, join us on line number four is Bob Dean. Good morning, Bob. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Thanks for making time for the show this morning, Bob. Yeah, I uh, I should have been in Halifax to the tournament, but I had a few minor, <laughs> minor medical things, and I had to have a, 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 a sort of a day operation. And other than that, I, I covered a lot of good. But that was all pre-done about a month ago, so that fooled me off. I got a little bit of a cold now. But anyway, yeah, so uh, Zach did all right, I must say. Zach, I thought, played really well. Now, of course, the first game of the tournament against Czechia, a hit that he'd only get two for roughing in the queue. Of course, he got five, so he got off to a bit of a funny start. Did you talk to him after that penalty? Because that can really throw you off stride. You know what? That was the first call ever in hockey. Like the boy said on TSN, you know, I mean, uh, uh, if that was in the NHL, he, he, he might need got two minutes. He might that went have been just passed right off. Yep. Well, it's a really a lousy call, but what do you do? And so where did you watch the gold medal game, Bob? What's that? Where did you watch the gold medal game? Oh, I watched it at home here. Yep. Okay. Yep. So take us back to when, of course, you come from a very hockey uh, successful family like Zach does come from. 
take us back a little bit when, you know, for instance, I know some kids who turn out to be terrific players, but their first days in minor hockey, they did not want to get on the ice. They didn't like it, didn't want to do it. Moms and dads were struggling whether or not to bring them back to the rink. What was that like as a young hockey player? Oh, he was, I can't, I can't describe him. He was just, he was just rearing the goal, right? When he, if he first put the skates out of here, about he was only three and a half years old. And uh, anyway, he, uh, we put him on the ice here with the tiny tots. And he went in the water, he went in the water, he went in on the ice just like a fish to water. And he, he, he took the puck. And the kids just stood around and watched them. <laughs> he wouldn't give the puck up. <laughs> he was only about three and a half years old. But Zach was always, he was good at sports. He was a super, super basketball player. He was good at soccer. He was good at whatever he did, right? Yeah, it's a common theme with uh, athletes who are as cal- the caliber of uh, fellows like Zach. So he's, of course, fish to water. And on he goes. But then comes a decision that the family has to face about the next level of competition. It's fine to stay at home and play, but if you want to get the best coaching available and want to play against the stiffest competition, at some point, young people and their families consider moving away. Talk us through that time of Zach's life when that was going to be a decision that the family had to face. Yeah, well, Trent and Kendra, they... Uh and they uh, had to make a decision. He went away when he was, he was uh, what, uh, 15 years old. He went to Toronto in the Greater Toronto Hockey League where all the superstars played in that midget, major midget it was called, or mm-hmm. McDavid and Matthews and all the guys. They played in that same league, and he did exceptionally well there. And then he was drafted by uh, by Quebec, Chateau, right? But, uh, yeah, he did well up there, and... Uh, you know, he didn't. The hoist time, like, I mean, the other guys that aren't all these guys, they're super, super hockey players. But when you're paying 65% of the game and you're on the ice all that time and you're good, something's got to happen. Now, Zach would have got racked up more points if he if he got a little bit more time. Now, I'm not saying nothing against that, but there's, you know, he'd be half 45 seconds. I know he had to change fast, but uh, anyway, he did all right. I thought he did great. I thought he played really well. He hit the scoreboard with a goal. He had an assist uh, with a Fantilli goal, which was a beautiful play by Zach. So that when was you watch, yeah. yeah, that was a lovely play. When I watched my own boys, and neither one of them, of course, played at that level of hockey or any other sport, even though Jack was a pretty solid player, a volleyball player, I always had the combination of pride, nerves. I was never one of those parents so stressed that I couldn't watch. I see a lot of that going on. But when you sit down to watch, is it all about the excitement, or where does your belly go when you see Zach step on the whether it be for Gatineau or, of course, drafted in the first round to play in Vegas and or playing for his country. Yeah, well, yeah, I think he'd... Uh, what was the question again? No, how do you that. feel? Sometimes I get a bit stressed, but I'm more excited and proud than anything else when I watch my boys play. How about you? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And in, listen, though, in the, in the shootout, it was in everybody's game, really, the, the, the final game. When they had the three on three... Yeah. I had my fingers crossed <laughs> that the coach would not put Zachary out. After having such a good series, I said to myself, now, if Zach gets out there and makes a mistake, and then that's going to be a doubt around him. But my wish came true. They scored a goal about a minute after that. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I, I, I did want to go. I said, Trent said, why not? Well, you know. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, he, he wasn't on there. And with three on three, which should never be an hockey. Agreed. Whoever came up with it, they should have got two years in jail. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a 
but I'll get a little bit of trivia. When Zach scored, he scored the winning goal that was two to two when they were playing the United States. And uh, yeah, he got the he set up. What was the name? What was the guy you said his name? Uh, Fantelli. He set up yeah, that Fantelli goal. Yeah, that was a beautiful play. Yeah. Anyway, this is this is a very coincidence. I don't know what it was, but anyway, when the clock stopped. The clock stopped at 14 minutes, 14 seconds. Now, Zach Stubber was 14, and uh, his date of birth, well, his sweater is 14, in January <clears throat> the 4th. That was his date. Now, that, that, that was just a coincidence, but that's what's come up on the clock. 1414, <laughs> Chris Hart, we prayed. Best attention to that. When that was when he says the guy's golden. But Zach, Zach played well, I must say, you know. Sure he did. Uh, before we run out of time, Bob, you're a fine player in your own, right? A Memorial Cup championship playing for the Hamilton Red Wings. He name-dropped a few guys who played in that major midget, you know, whether it be the McDavid's and the Matthews of the world. Alex Snow played in that uh, league as well, playing at St. Andrews. And play, I think he played his major midget with Aurora. So name-drop a few guys that you would have been playing with back in your days in the OHA. So I think he won the Memorial Cup in sixty. <coughs> So who are some of the guys maybe you played with or played against that we might recognize? Well, everybody everybody knows a Paul Anderson. No uh, Paul and I played on the same line in Hamilton. And uh, who else? Uh, oh, my God. Pete Martin. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't come up with them now, but there was about eight or ten. But, you know, I wanted to get an education. I was worried maybe becoming a hockey player. I went down to the States. I played there for a year, and I did exceptionally well. But, you know, back then, nobody made any money very much. If you had a half-decent job in, in, in just in society, you, you would probably make almost as much money as you could make in the NHL. But, so I, Paul Henderson belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, maybe he does. <clears throat> I'm in touch. We keep in touch all the time. I talk to him every now and then. When I talk to him again, I tell him I talked to someone else, and, and they didn't hear of him. Didn't know who he was. <laughs> really? So, Paul Henderson, last year was the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series, of course, Canada versus the Soviet Union, which was remarkable. And, of course, Henderson, not only really well-known internationally for his winning goal against the Soviets in Game 8, but he was one of the stars of the entire tournament. Oh yes, he played not only that one goal. I mean, he, he got he got some he got some beautiful goals. He set up some. He played. Gee, he got well, I don't know seven or eight points. Yeah, he played exceptionally well. Yeah, fun. But, anyway, so Zach has got back to Gatineau now. So I think we got the first game. We get all the games through the CHL through the internet, right? We yep. just opened it to our TV. So we got some hockey coming up Thursday night. Yeah, I guess they got the first game. But I want to say Zach did well. <clears throat> For the time that he was on the ice, if he was if he was on Bernard, he almost racked up a spinning His skills, he never really, he got that much skills. That his skills, 45 seconds on the ice. He never had time to demonstrate, you know, his skills. That's because, he, man, he could he can do stuff at the puck that some guys, you know, you know, it's uh, happening, but anyway, he did well. He did, and he's going back to Gatineau riding high. I'm sure he'll have a banner second half of the season. Really appreciate you making time for the show this morning, Bob, and hopefully you're recovering in full. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I am recovered. I'm just sitting back here now having a coffee. And uh, But anyway, well, yeah. thank, thanks for putting me on the line there. 
and uh, we'll probably be in touch some other time. I look forward to it, especially when he cracks the big lineup in the NHL playing for Vegas oh my God. in the near Don't future. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. Yeah, okay, bye-bye. All the best, bye-bye. That's Bullet Bob Dean, Memorial Cup champion. I'm glad I asked him. He played on a line with Paul Henderson. <laughs> Not too bad. Yeah, Henderson in that Summit Series. You know, everyone talks about that one goal, but I think he scored three game winners for Canada in that tournament. Amazing stuff. Uh, how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Today's a good day to get on the show. All you have to do is pick up the phone and give us a call during this news break. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line doing there. Walter, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Patty. Hi there. Uh, Patty, are you there? Um, you just had Bob Dean on, and uh, I just wanted to call in and, uh, and to say I'm from Brantford, Ontario, and uh, in my teens I used to go watch Bob play uh, for the Hamilton Red Wings at the Barton Street Barn in the Hamilton, Ontario, and you asked for the names of some of the other players on the team. Pitt Martin was on that same team. Eddie Bush was the coach. But the interesting thing about that time that Bob Dean played, the other guys on the other teams that made it to the pros, uh, he used to play against uh, St. Catherine's TPT Junior A team. Roger Crozier was their goalie, and you've, you've probably heard of Roger Crozier. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, also uh, for Montreal, Jacques Perrier played in the league at that time. And a little guy in Montreal, I forget his name, but they used to call him the Roadrunner. Uh, he was a very famous Montreal hockey player. Yvonne Cornoyer. Yvonne Cornoyer, yes. Yeah. It was him. He was in the league at the time. Also for the for the uh, St. Catharines team that Bob played against, there was uh, Bobby Hull's younger brothers. They played too. So that'd be Dennis uh, and... Uh, I'm I'm not sure about Dennis. Uh, well, it it could be. This was a long time ago for me. Um, a, a, another guy that played on the Hamilton team was Pete Mahovlich. Wow. Which was uh, Frank's uh, younger brother, but bigger than Frank. Yes, that's right. And the interesting thing uh, that I'm surprised Bob didn't mention was every year there used to be a charity game for crippled children, and uh, the Hamilton Red Wings was the farm team for the Detroit Red Wings, and the and the home team used to come out. Uh, the Detroit Red Wings would come down once a year, and they'd play the Hamilton Red Wings. They'd switch goalies. They'd put Terry, Terry Sawchuk in goal for the junior team, and uh, they'd only put three guys on the ice. And generally it was uh, Gordie Howe, um, oh God, uh, Del Vecchio, and a defenseman, a real stocky defenseman. I can't think of his name. So off. that would be Alex Del Vecchio, I guess. Yes, Alex Del Vecchio, but the defenseman, I can't think of his name offhand. But uh, that used to be the most entertaining game that the Hamilton Red Wings used to play. The the the, the place used to be packed, and uh, you had the famous. Uh, the Detroit Red Wings playing the Hamilton Red Wings. And like I said, they switched goalies. And the uh, the Detroit Red Wings would be uh, shooting against uh, Sawchuck. And the Hamilton Red Wings would be shooting against their own goalie, which at that time was Buddy Bloom. I just thought I'd, I'd uh, throw in some of that stuff because uh, I hadn't heard of Bob Dean's name now in about 50 years. <laughs> and uh, just recently, with the talk about his, uh, his uh, grandson playing, it uh, just brought back some memories. And I just thought I'd uh, call it. And just to let you know that I used to watch all the Hamilton Red Wing games whenever they get played, and uh, it was really interesting hockey back then. Was, some really good players came up in the uh, Hamilton er, in the uh, Ontario Tier One Junior A system, and at that time there were six teams in the league. Detroit's 
uh, farm system was Hamilton Red Wings. Uh, Chicago Blackhawks was uh, St. Catharines, TPTs. Um, Boston Bruins was uh, Niagara Falls Flyers. Uh, Toronto was Toronto Marlies. Mm -hmm. Uh, They always had a good team. And uh, Montreal was, of course, the Canadians. And Kitchener, the Kitchener Rangers, were the... the, uh, New York Rangers, and uh, uh, like I said, there was uh, one junior team that matched each of the NHL teams back then in the Hamilton system, and it, and it was the main feeder for the NHL. Anyhow, I just thought I'd pass that on to you. You seem to be a hockey fan, and I and I thought you might find that interesting. I did. I found every bit of it interesting. And you went on to mention Niagara Falls, the Flyers. They became the Niagara Thunder after a while. One of my buddies, Steve Locke, played for that particular team, and Roger Crozier. And Crozier, he's in the Buffalo Sabres Hall of Fame, not in the Hockey Hall of fame, but he won a Calder as Rookie of the Year. He won the Conn Smythe as a goalie for the Detroit Red Wings. uh, For the Detroit Red Wings when he first went on. He was very acrobatic. I used to play goal, too, and I used to love watching him. He was was an acrobat. He was a... uh, he could do anything on a pair of skates. He was uh, one of the most agile people I've ever seen play hockey, even to this day. He was, uh, he was spectacular in everything that he did. And uh, it was uh, just such a uh, joy to watch him play. He was a right-handed he catcher. Behind him every game. <laughs> was he a right-handed catcher? I th- no, he was a lefty. He, oh, oh, wait. He was a lefty, so he caught with his right. Scoop yeah. on the right. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's terrific. A bunch of names you peppered in there. But to know that Bob played with Paul Henderson on that line, that's pretty cool. In addition to all the other players that you brought forward here this morning, fascinating stuff. I'm really glad you oh, called, Walter. Uh, back then, uh, it's... Uh, uh, they were interviewing Henderson one night long before he he became famous, and uh, Nora Marshall was the announcer for the Hamilton team, and he was the voice of Junior A up in Ontario, and he and he asked Paul how he came up, and it turns out he was playing on Hamilton Mountain in a midget game, and he scored something like either 14 or 18 goals, and the scouts looked at him right away, and they thought they'd bring him up, and from there everything was history after that. Absolutely fascinating. I'm glad you called. Uh, you know, mentioned that last year was the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series, and I saw Sir Shavard, Kenny Dryden, and Paul Henderson holding court at the Hall of Fame, you know, being asked questions by the members of the media. Go on to tell some great stories. Of course, Henderson, well-known for his exploits in that particular yeah. tournament, but I'll just throw this in there just for curiosity's sake. Is now, Dryden... Uh, I, sorry? I, I don't know if you knew it, but uh, Ken Dryden's younger brother, Dave... Well, well, Ken Dryden's older brother, Dave, used to be an, an NHL goalie, too, and uh, he, he used to play for the uh, – he played junior A for uh, Guelph, uh, Dave Dryden. And I think Dave was up in the pros, too. So both the Dryden boys were uh, goalies. And they were both really good goalies, obviously, making it to the pros. Yeah, and Ken played a very short career, albeit a storied career, with a bunch of Stanley Cups. Dryden went down to tell the story of the 3,000 Canadians that traveled to Moscow. Because back in those days, that was not something that people in North America did, to travel to places like Moscow and Russia and the Soviet Union. And they came up with what became, I think, probably one of the best chants I've ever heard. So in the pub, over a beer, waiting for, to go to game number five, because they played the first four in Canada, the, they knew very little Russian, of course. They, do, they knew uh, da and yet. And so the chant became uh, da, da, Canada, yet, yet, Soviet. <laughs> I love that story. <laughs> Uh, Ken Dryden, uh, uh, I used to hang around with uh, Ken Dryden's cousin, and 
at that time, we didn't think much of Ken Dryden. Dave Dryden was the NHL goalie, and we all thought that was great. And Ken was going to school in uh, at Cornell in Ithaca, New York. Right. He got called up to play for the Montreal team in that famous uh, year where he was called up to the pros. And uh, that year, I was coming down to Newfoundland to go to school, and I... Uh, and I talked to my cousin's father, who was the, the uh, Dryden's uncle, and he says, I'll have Ken send you something. So Ken sent me a uh, postcard that says, to Walter, best wishes in the coal country, Ken Dryden. And <laughs> that was kind of neat. I I don't have it now. It uh, got lost. But uh, back then, Ken wasn't famous. He was uh, just a kid uh, playing uh, for Ithaca in, uh, in, in the uh, U.S. League. But... Uh, um, uh, Montreal must have figured he was good enough to come up to the pros, and he certainly was. He went on to become a lawyer, a corporate lawyer. That's for- right, yeah. A liberal member of parliament. Uh, he, when he got called up, he very quickly knocked uh, Rogi Vachon, who was their veteran goaltender in Montreal, knocked him out of his starting spot, and as they say, the rest is history. The next year, he won the Calder as the Rookie of the Year. I can't remember exactly how many seasons he played or exactly how many cups, yeah. but I, I think, think from 71 to 79 or something. I think back then, Montreal had another uh, junior uh, goalie that came up, Bunny LaRocque. Oh, yeah. Red Light LaRocque. He he played for the uh, junior Habs, and he went up to uh, uh, play for the Canadians. Some of the other names that that Bob Dean played with was Bob Wall. That may not ring a bell. Larry Zoliato. These names are just coming to mind right now after thinking back, watching the Hamilton Red Wings. The coach was Eddie Bush, who I think, and and every now and then Sid Abel used to come up and uh, spend some time with him, from what I understand. Either him or or Milt Schmidt, one of the two. But uh, every now and then you'd uh, see a... um, a, a pro player come from the Detroit Red Wings and you'd see him on the bench talking to the boys and back then it was that was in the early 60s I was uh, I think I was about 14 13 14 back then and uh, my dad and, and my cousin we used to go down to all the Hamilton games and anyhow I just thought I'd pass it on to you being a hockey fan I thought you'd find it interesting sir I love the call I appreciate the time Walter okay Patty take, take care bye 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 there you go. It's filling in the blanks. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let us go to line number three. Caller, you're on the air. Hello? Hello. Oh, hi. Uh, uh, this first time I'm doing this, so please forgive all the <laughs> ifs, ands, or buts. You take your time. Uh, pa- go right ahead. Patty, um, I've had a traumatic experience uh, with one of my animals at the animal hospital. And I don't know how to or where to file a complaint. Okay. Well, you know, curiously, there's actually a college of veterinary surgeons that can do exactly that. There's actually a governing board for veterinarians uh, here in this province as well inside the department. I'm pretty sure of fisheries, forestry, and agriculture. So those are two places you can turn. Fisheries, what is it? Fisheries. If you go to the, part, the Provincial Department of Fisheries, Forestry, and Agriculture, yeah. they, are, they are the department responsible for the governing board of the College of Veterinarians, so you can probably do it there. There's actually something formally called, like for instance, the College of Physicians and Surgeons, which deals with uh, doctors right. dealing with humans. There's actually a right. College of Veterinary Surgeons as well okay. that can do exactly that as, uh, in addition to the governing board at the department. Okay. All right, then. 
I can just go on Google, I guess, and get them. Yeah, I think if you just go to the department, say, just well, Government of Newfoundland and Labrador, then yeah. you'll come to the various departments, and you go inside the Fisheries, Forestry, Agriculture Department. I think that's exactly where you're going to find the board that governs veterinarians here in the province, and oh. there'll be a, an opportunity there to find out who to speak with, a number to call, and probably an online opportunity to file a formal complaint. Yes, because this, this was complete neglect, right? I'm not really sure exactly what went on, of course, but... Yeah, no, I, I don't think we need to get into it anyway, and I'm still too upset about it. Okay. Uh, but I appreciate that. Uh, if you want me to get into it, I can. But well, no, we can leave it at that. That's fine, because, yeah. you know, it is emotional when we talk about our children yeah. and or our pets. So, yeah. uh, Dave, do you want me to put this lady on hold? Okay, David Williams also wants to speak with you. I think he's got a couple of contact points that uh, I didn't have at the tip of my fingers, but Dave does have it. So I'll put you on hold and get some more information from Dave. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Let's go to line number two. Brian, you're on the air. Hello, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How are you doing? You know, before I go on with my rant for this morning, you were talking to a previous caller about some great Montreal Canadian players. I'd like to point out that Ken Dryden has been the only player in the NHL to win the Conn Smythe Trophy before he won Rookie of the Year. That's right, yeah. That's something else. Anyway, my rant this morning. Uh, I know I'm going to get on a lot of people's nerves because every time there's a school shooting in the States, I always come on their show. And I know there's lots of people out there who want to defend guns. And, you know, there are people who have guns. And I know some gun owners, and they're very good. And uh, I know that the uh, NRA and the Gun Association in Canada don't want to take any responsibility. Well, of course, that's politics. And there's a story that nobody is mentioning. I know CBC wants to... Not mentioned it at all because they're owned by the Gun Association. And I think your station probably goes along with that too. But there was a story that I'd like to mention that I know is going to get on the, a lot of people's nerves, especially conservatives and liberals who support gun ownership. Last week in the state of Virginia, we had a school shooting. A grade one uh, teacher was seriously injured and is still in critical condition. And who was the perpetrator? A six-year-old. The perpetrator was a student. How old was that student? Six years old. Now, I know that the Gun Association want people to have guns, but, Patty, when I was six years old, I couldn't fire a a, a play gun. And we're accepting everything. Now, I haven't heard that story on the CBC. I heard it once on American television, but everybody wants to forget about it. A woman is lying, perhaps dying, in a Virginia hospital due to the fact that she was having some sort of an altercation with a a six-year-old child. Now, this altercation may be going on for weeks. Who knows? And... He brought a gun into school, hid it on his person, and I don't know, perhaps uh, it was uh, she kept him after class or something, but he pulled out a gun and he knew how to use it. 
I don't know how how bright he was in school, but he darn well knew how to use guns. Now, if a six-year-old can do that and get away with it, I think our society has come to an end. Well, I don't know if getting away with it is the right reference, but I, I mean, I saw that story in virtually every media outlet I looked at over the weekend. It's unbelievable. I don't think even with the, the nefarious nature of some NRA I was going to say blood money, dark money that floats through American politics. Nobody's in support of things like this. The big question for me is, where are the parents and where's their liability? You know, there's just something unbelievable. It's one thing when you see the teenagers and they bought a weapon and then the tragedy of that is school shootings. But a six-year-old, gun-toting six-year-old that purposefully and willfully brought a gun to school to settle a score with a teacher is mind-boggling it really truly is so the poor kid will never i mean this will haunt their the rest of their existence but what's the story with the parents where does liability lie here how did the little tyke even get their hands on a gun there's all sorts of laws about safe storage what have you but the gun culture there's more guns than there are people in the united states which is crazy when you think about it out loud but yeah what's the role of the parents here and what's the aftermath for them because that six-year-old their life is will be forever known as the child that shot the teacher well, Patty, last night I, I phoned a friend of mine in Saskatchewan. I taught his, stu- his son many years ago, and his son died of cancer. He's a gun owner. And first, when I went to visit his son at his, at his home, he was very sick at the time. We, we got to talk, and, and he told me, he said, you know, Brian, he says, uh, I have guns here. Uh, and he says, uh, and he says, uh, are, are you, uh, are you, uh, don't feel good around guns? I says, not really. And, I, and he says, I have a, a key, and that's to a storage room, and that's where the guns are for my hunting. And his, he had two other uh, sons, and they grew up and are now adults with their own children. And they knew everything about guns because their their father taught them. And he wanted these guns are not to be taken out; they're to be used for hunting. And I'll take you hunting when you when you go to a, a another a place where you learn how to shoot guns. And I think that's great. That's the way you should do it. But wherever I mean, you got the parents with this gun hanging around. You had this other parent, I forget right now, about the school shooting. Where did the guy get the, get the gun? The parents gave it to him for Christmas. And I think it's about time that, that we started to take responsibility. Because it's, it's, get, it's not getting out of hand, it's out of hand. And I don't know, you're right, uh, this child will grow up knowing that he's going to be the youngest person ever to kill anybody. And well, no, that's not true either, unfortunately, especially when we talk about the United States. Look, there are things regarding, in this country, the controversy, which I think is real about Bill C-21, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense if we're talking about public safety. But to learn how to safely use a firearm and respect for a firearm, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Like here no. in this province, we lower the hunting age, right? So the minimum age to hunt small game, whether it be... Uh, coyote or what have you, has been lowered from 16 to 12. 
Minimum age to shoot big game lowered from 18 to 16. So we haven't seen any accidents come from it. We haven't seen anything uh, untoward or anything negative come from it because to learn how to do things safely and respectfully is important. But it's all just the nature of the gun culture, isn't it? There's a vast difference between safe storage, safe training, and understanding exactly what you're doing when you get out to respect the environment, to respect the firearm that you're carrying, to do it safely, to enjoy hunting, versus what has been just an unbelievable got away from them reliance on uh, centuries-old legislation and amendments regarding the ability to own a firearm and, you know, well-regulated militia and all the other nonsense to get on with has just led down a path where mass shootings don't even grab headlines anymore. There's more mass shootings per year than there are days on the calendar. It's it's just hard to watch, and I really don't know what to say about it. But in this country, there's, I think, fair conversations to be had about Bill 21, fair conversations about uh, lowering hunting ages and what have you. Thankfully, the gun culture that is very American has not bled in full, at least across the borders into this country. But those stories, when I saw it over the weekend, I just shook my head and thought, this the tragedy is almost unspeakable. And to come up with a word to describe it is almost impossible. Well, you know, Patty, you go into anybody's house, and if there's liquor in there, the liquor, people generally have their liquor locked away. People become angry if, if they find out that their kids uh, have been drinking and stuff like that, and, and that's good. But we got there's, there's no there's no um, outrage when we when we find out that oh Joey can buy can get himself a gun at his house because you know the parents is. have it, their parents bought to him for Christmas. There's endless outrage about uh, guns and gun violence, especially when we talk about it in school. I, I think in a way I agree with you. But in another way, it's it's like um, uh, other things. We talk a lot about it, but we don't ever do anything about it. Uh, you know, uh, in the United States, and I hate to bring it up time and time again, the uh, NRA is more popular than the Catholic Church. And uh, it's their religion. Yeah, and no wonder it goes on to the, to the uh, parents. I, I saw last night... And it, this got something else to do with it. You had Ronald Reagan Jr. on, I don't know why he was on television, and he's now president of the uh, Atheist Association of the United States. And he was on trying to raise uh, raise money for that organization. And, you know, I bet you today more people are outraged over that, you know? And uh, so... That's the latest in the in, in my rant uh, for um, uh, against against the gun culture and what's happening in our schools. I pray, Paddy, I'll never have to phone you again. If if we go out for a couple of months and you don't hear from me, that means that things are getting better. <laughs> Hope so, Brian. I appreciate the time. Okay, Paddy. God Take bless. You Take care of yourself. Bye bye. Yeah. I mean, I think those stories are unbelievable. And, you know, again, so someone will inevitably say, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about that? American gun culture is an impossible conversation. It just truly is. And you talk about shootings in schools, and I think the proof is in the pudding. If nothing changed after Sandy Hook, it's never going to change. Right? In the United States, anyway. We've been able to stave off some of those types of headlines in this country, for the most part, which is, of course, excellent news. But conversations about guns, they're so polarizing that they're very difficult to entertain, difficult to 
come up with any actual fair civil discourse about it. It's all in, all out. And, of course, when that's the... Uh, when that's the approach that either side takes to important conversations like that, there's a reason why we don't get anywhere. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, what are we talking about? Well, that's up to you. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Well, we spoke about off the top of the program this morning, the issue that I broach frequently because I think... For many people listening to the show, it's one of the issues that dominates their thought process day in and day out is not only what's for supper, but how am I going to afford it? So there was mention of the Canopy Growth Facility up on the White Hills. Of course, it sits on a 12-acre plot of some 21,000 square meter production facility, which lays dormant. Fully ready to go, a $90 million facility that is pristine and completely geared up for some sort of operation, whether it be government-led or private sector-led, to utilize 21,000 square meters and grow more food, and year-round, and a variety of foods. So the question that I had was I'm not really entirely sure about the status of the building. We all know that it's not being utilized, but who has any opportunity to do anything with it? Or is it a result of waiting for the five-year lease plan that Canopy had with the numbered company, which was controversial in and of itself, before there could be any move made? Canopy has divested not only every single retail license they had in this, uh, in this province, but also a lot of their production facilities, including this one. So the thought is whether or not Canopy is just going to try to sell it off after their five-year arrangement with a number company and they're paying an extraordinarily, extraordinarily high uh, lease payment for that property. But even if it's not that facility, it's kind of alarming that we've continued to rely strictly on traditional, for the most part, traditional business models in agriculture. And that would be, of course, farming the land. And thankfully, we've got people who are willing to stick with it and farm the land traditionally as we all understand it. But, you know, I don't think they all have to be these large-scale operations like this 21,000-square-meter facility, but more and more growth growing where people are living and whether it be the municipalities, the provincial government, or whoever the case may be, getting involved in being the champion of it, to be the driving force behind it. Because can you imagine the reduction? Because food insecurity is not simply about price point at the grocery store. Some of it's as simple as access. So if you've got an, a lengthy drive ahead of you to access more and more options and maybe save some money, it of course also comes with having to fuel up the rig to get to those options. So access is every bit the conversation that price is. So if there was some of these smaller greenhouse operations dotted all over the island, all over parts of Labrador, wouldn't that just go a long way to dealing with some of the insecurity issues that people have? Number one, it would deal with access, right? And it wouldn't all have to be exotic growth inside a hydroponic facility. It could be grow whatever because that's the beauty of the technology is you can grow a variety of things that we don't have the opportunity outdoors for a year-round operation given the obvious, the climate, and some of the restrictions that we have in place here. So if you know more about what the actual reality is for the ability for the province or for a private sector, co sector company to get involved in using that big facility up on the White Hills, I think that would go a long way. So what makes it... I don't know what that is. Someone makes an interesting point. I made mention of the fact that there was a retired armed, source, armed forces veteran who had a lot of back and forth with Marine Atlantic before he could uh, get safe passage for his service dog, Posey. He's got PTSD and really relies on Posey to get through his day, dealing with anxiety and what have you. 
And the listener pointed out there is a difference between a service dog and a therapy dog. You're absolutely right. My point wasn't about that distinction. My point was that if we've got, say, for instance, in Mr. and Jean Guy's case, that if Air Canada and United Airlines accepted, with no questions asked, the documents he had to talk about his service dog and the training that the service dog has received, so whether it be your service dog and your therapy dog, where they can and cannot go based on standardized documentation. So you would have, if Air Canada would accept it, then so would Marine Atlantic, and so would Sunwing, and Southwest Airlines, and WestJet, and the BC Ferry Service. All of those entities would have a clear understanding of what documentation looks like, a clear understanding of what's expected or, anticip- or pardon me, expected of the owner of the service dog or the therapy dog, because they're not exactly the same thing. That's 100% true. But when the lack of standardization across the document world leads to these types of standoffs, of course it's very frustrating for the business, and more importantly, for the owner of the said service dog or therapy dog. So that's where, you know, kind of gets away from us uh, in large part across the country. You know, we all have the same needs and wants and aspirations for the caliber, the training, and the professionalism, for instance, of healthcare workers. Yet we've got different guiding principles and licensing protocols from one province to another. I know it's a very competitive world out there, but there's no reason for it to be the dog's breakfast that it is. (laughs) Poorly chosen phrase. Because it just leads to more problems than it does solutions. And I'll mention the fact that I'm going to find out more about it throughout the course of the day is the new formalized arrangement between the province, the Department of Health Community Services, and the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association regarding overcoming some of the shortfalls or the gaps in family medicine in particular. They also go on to talk a little bit about locums and some of the the paper warfare and the time and the costs associated with being able to travel freely across the country as a locum physician. So it's important, but I still would like to know a little bit more about is it simply just formalizing all of these ideas, the uh, incentive, the suite of incentives and different policies that the government has tried to impose or implement to increase the number of healthcare workers uh, working and living in the province? Or is there something in addition to it which is going to give us a much better chance to deal with some of the shortages, to see some of these emergency rooms that continue to be closed reopened? I mean, and I heard this morning that there was two additional emergency rooms that were going to be closed today. Uh, and into next week. So one in St. Lawrence, that's one thing. But on Whitburn, that emergency room remains closed. It's been closed for six months. Six months out in Whitburn. So those types of issues are absolutely up for discussion here on the show. Let's take a break. When we come back, oh, there was also a mention of, you know, there's has there ever been any accountability beyond a relatively small fine for an oil company with any type of spill at sea? Hibernia, their management corporation, is challenging the Canadian, uh, the CNLOPB, about a fine that came down based on a 2019 spill. They were already fined earlier, a couple of years prior, for a, another spill, which was fairly minor, although maybe that's not going to be a welcome phrase in some years. But they're challenging the CNLOPB's fine, and it's going to make its way to court. What accountability looks like there, whether it be for oversight, management, how quick they respond when they see some, whether it be their muds or oil, make its way from a valve into the ocean. But that story is in the news as well. If you want to take it on, we can do it after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. So with the first bit of snow that's stuck here on this part of the province anyway, I know there's been lots of snow in different parts of Newfoundland and Labrador, but not around Metro. I mean, there's been nothing but green grass out there until yesterday, for the most part. And it actually stuck overnight. 
This one lady sends a note across, and if you are a frequent listener to this program, you'll know that the whole concept and the talk and discussion around rodents is my least favorite. And we know, we've seen reports that St. John's is the most rat-infested city or city or town in Atlantic Canada. But what we did see, and I noticed as I look out into the park behind my house this morning, just out of curiosity because it's on my mind, was the amount of tracks. And you can tell full well what the animal is with the paws and, of course, the dragging tail. And there was plenty of them. This lady went on, she's calling or emailing from Mount Pearl this morning saying that her property is absolutely covered in these trails this morning. And just a friendly reminder to people to make sure that you don't have any of the items discarded in and around your property that would attract those types of rodents, the rats in particular. They'll go over the food and the water is. So her reminder was maybe just make sure you keep your doors closed and you haul your bird feeders in because that's one thing I think has been proven fairly convincingly is that the bird feeder is a, you know, it's a site for sore eyes for the rat population. It's an easy feed. And, of course, where they find the easy feed, they'll be quick to return. So as to keep your doors closed, you'll be hauling the bird feeder and whatever else might be out around your property to stave off the rats. And there, look, I know it's a disgusting conversation, but it's real. And it seems to be a massive problem in this part of the province. I'm not sure what it's like in other parts of Newfoundland Labrador, but here in the metro region, it is absolutely a problem. Does it ever approach being problematic enough where you need something done by the municipalities and or the province? At some point, it's a health concern. On top of just being infuriating and gross and whatever else goes with talking about the rat population but it's it's absolutely real and if you examine your property today for those types of remnants the tracks of the tail and the paws you'll probably see what myself and that particular lady saw in the freshly fallen snow and in preparation for tomorrow, it looks like it's going to be a bit of nasty weather. I don't know how bad it's going to be. And there is the potential, if the forecast holds true throughout today and into tomorrow morning, there's a fair chance that schools will be closed in the K-12 system tomorrow. There hasn't been a snow day, even though there's been lots of fits and starts and the absenteeism is obviously very real in K-12. So I only mentioned it so that maybe it'll just be the reminder that you might have to have a look around and a few calls tonight to find a place for your child for tomorrow and or someone to come into the house because schools may be closed. Because if the forecast, as I mentioned, holds true, it's probably going to be exactly that. Because especially the late or the uh, late morning and the afternoon commutes could be messy. They're talking about maybe snow up to 25 centimeters. But of course, around here, it's the wind that tells the tale with just how nasty or dirty or messy it will be. And that's what it currently looks like today. And on that front, I know full well that snow tires, winter tires are not cheap. They're not cheap at all. And at the beginning of the so-called winter season or at the end of the fall, they weren't even that easy to find, let alone the affordability issue. I've said this in the past, and it gets me in a world of trouble, but I'm going to throw it out there again. It's, it's what the issue is with the safe navigating of the city or town streets or provinces, highways, and byways without winter tires. You know, at some point, your all-seasons are completely and utterly useless. And I get it. Easy enough for me to spend your money. But, you know, whether it be you get a distinct break on your insurance, your auto insurance when you have winter tires, or if you have the mandating of winter tires for winter travel. 
you know, I, I know they do that in some parts of the country, but is that something that's legitimate around here? I mean, you've seen it as much as I've seen it. Someone with the all-season baloney skins that's trying to get up the slightest little incline but can't because the tires are of no value with the temperature and the road conditions under the rubber. Versus what is a much better opportunity to get around safely when you have winter tires on, which, of course, the rubber compound, the way they're designed, the type of treads are for exactly that, navigating ice and snow. You know, add into it some of the issues regarding studded tires. And some people, that's it. They lean on them. Studded tires is the only way to go. They're never going to choose anything but the studded option for the winter. But do you think it's fair to even talk about the potential for mandatory snow tires in winter? It certainly will make things safer for the person driving their own rig and make it safer for everyone else around them. Because the all-seasons, like, for instance, today and into tomorrow, with the temperatures forecasted, the amount of snow and the wind, and what is already going to be fairly slick conditions, it was minus 7 as I drove to work this morning, your all-seasons are just not doing it for you. So, again, I understand the affordability issue. I really, truly do. But I think if you factor in what happens if and when you cause an accident or have an accident for the hike in your insurance premiums, for the potential for injury or worse, then maybe the cost is recovered fairly quickly because an increase in your insurance goes a long way to buying a set of snow tires that can last you the two, three winters, you know, because they're out there for the obvious reasons. And if you want to take it on, I know people don't want to be mandated anything. Nobody wants government to tell you what to do, when to do it, how to do it. But sometimes in the the world of public safety, it has been controversial from the onset, but accepted in the long run. I mean, think of things like different types of brakes and seatbelts and uh, up and down the line when we talk about being safe as a motorist and of course driving to conditions always has been the be all and end all but that's not necessarily how people want to talk about it either but in the world of insurance whether it be a break because of winter tires what have you i think coming up after the 11 o'clock news we do indeed have the minister responsible for that issue and that's sarah studley So my questions for the minister would be about the implementation of this new digital insurance validation program, exactly the thought process behind it, and exactly how, pragmatically speaking, the government thinks that will lead to fewer people on the road uninsured. I know that there's reporting obligations from your insurance company to the Department of Motor Vehicles if you cancel your insurance, because that's the trick, right? People go re-register their vehicle in short order, maybe not even off the parking lot in Mount Pearl, call and cancel their insurance to save that bit of money. They got the registration, so they're back in business. So how exactly does that work? And then going on to talk about the expansion of digital ID, which becomes an interesting, I'll call it, conversation in some uh, social media circles, for instance. You know, about privacy, number one, and where it leads, number two, whether or not that would be mandated or optional, number three. But a lot of the information that would be compiled and collected, for instance, if you go in somewhere and they want your information from your driver's license, it's got a lot of personal information right there on it, as opposed to simply a green check mark if you're being asked if you're the age majority or what have you to legally purchase something at the liquor store. But all of the information that people are worried about, and I'm worried about my privacy, absolutely. But whether it be banking, social insurance number, and other contact points or points of reference with government and or financial institutions, they're the ones that provide the information. They've already got it on hand. I'm not 100% sure about the additional associated risk of having it in under one ID, one piece of identification, digital or otherwise. Because if people want your info, they can get your info. 
You know, we talk about hacks all the way from medical systems like the Meditech cyber attack in this province. And we've seen other hacks take place with government entities all the way from the Pentagon down to tax bureaus and otherwise. So if you have some thoughts or some questions that you'd like to hear me pose on your behalf to Minister Studley, I'm happy to do it. Because it has been, in some corners, the boogeyman, the thing, the number one thing that we have to worry about is the uh, amalgamation of your personal identification issues, social insurance numbers and otherwise, on a one piece of digital ID. Okay, let's see. We are on Twitter. We're VOC Mobile Line. Follow us there. Our email address, <coughs> pardon me, is openline.vocm.com. Uh, here's a good one. Alex says, hey, me. That's me. Wouldn't it be nice if the school district was proactive and sent a memo out this evening closing schools because of impending weather? Parents could plan ahead, for, uh, ahead of time. That's absolutely true. The only thought that comes to mind immediately on that one is, what happens if the variability in the forecast changes the water on the beans tomorrow morning, and all of a sudden the weather that they thought was coming at the tune of 25 is now all of a sudden 10 because the storm blew a little further offshore. But I get your point. You know, preparation is key. And Jim says he gave his son a set of studded snow tires for his Christmas present. I'm sure he welcomed that. Out in a parking lot yesterday out at the Costco, which I very seldom go to, you can hear so clearly the studded tires coming. The whir of the metal against the pavement is unmistakable. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we're speaking with you about whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the Liberal Member of the House of Assembly, elected in and serving the folks of Mount Sio. She's also the Minister responsible for Digital Government and Service Enel, in addition to the uh, Chief Information Officer and Francophone Affairs. But that's Minister Sarah Studley. Good morning, Minister Studley. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. How about you? I'm excellent, thanks. Okay. So the way of the world in large part is the digitization, which comes with some convenience but also some worries. In particular with the digital insurance validation program, pragmatically speaking, how does that change the number of drivers who are willing to drive uninsured, for instance? Sure. So that's an excellent question. So um, we've seen, you know, in the past insurance reviews that we have signif- we had a significant number of people, uh, you know, driving uninsured. Um, in the five-year p- period ending 2016, um, there was $26 million of, of essentially damages and, and amounts paid out to uninsured drivers, which is driving up the cost of everyone's, uh, you know, insurance. Um, so there's, there's two new things that we've done and then some recent things that we've done uh, to try and cut down on that. So um, the first and I guess I think the most impactful one is we are now, uh, our motor registration system is talking to all the insurers. Um, so when you renew your vehicle, you give us your insurance policy number. Um, and we've never actually checked that before. Um, so now we're doing that double, the autom- an automated double check. Um, and we've done that in the background now for all the insurance policy numbers that we have. Um, and so because it's mandatory that you have, you know, um, public liability auto insurance with your with your vehicle. So we're checking your insurance policy now to make sure that it's an active insurance policy. Um, and so for anyone, when you if you don't have an active insurance policy, you won't be able to renew your your uh, your vehicle registration unless you do have an active policy. But we're also now going to be proactively going out to people and saying, hey, the, the policy number we have, there's no active insurance policy here. Um, you know, maybe there's a typo or maybe, you know, you didn't update it the last time you changed insurers. Um, so we're going to have uh, people who will be able to let us know online um, of their new policy number. 
Uh, and then also the insurers um, are going to tell us as soon as someone cancels an insurance policy. So we know historically some people have had insurance, auto insurance, and they cancel the day after um, or, you know, a few weeks after. And so insurers are going to tell us uh, when someone cancels their insurance policy. And then that's going to start our internal processes to you know, let them know that, hey, we know that you don't have an active insurance policy and, uh, you know, we'll work with you for a little while. But ultimately, that will mean that your registration, uh, we're going to cancel your registration with comes, uh, you know, and then if we find that you don't have active insurance, um, there are essentially punishments in the, in the legislation and regulations, like a fine up to $4,000. Uh, you can earn six demerit points. Uh, you know, you can have your vehicle impounded. So pretty some pretty stiff fines for driving uninsured. So um, those are kind of the two biggest things that we're, we're doing to try and cut down the number of uninsured drivers. Uh, before we get into the process, what does working yeah. with them mean? Um, well, you know, We'll send you a letter. You know, I'm sure mo- in most cases it's going to be like um, a mistake. Probably, maybe we have the wrong uh, insurance policy number. Maybe there's a typo. Maybe we made a mistake. Maybe you know you made a mistake online. So just you know, we're going to I think notify you by email firstly, and that would have already happened for people who whose vehicles renewed in January. Um, so we would send you an email saying, "Oh, your insurance policy wasn't active." click here to give us your updated ones. Um, and in the background, because we did this kind of in advance for all the policies, and so um, just over 95% of policies uh, had an active auto policy. Sorry, uh, sorry 90, over 95% of vehicles sorry, had an active auto insurance policy. Um, and so it's the 5% now that we're going to clean up and make sure that we get, you know, we reach out to you and give us a chance. That's when I say work with you, I mean, um, we'll give you a chance to give us your up-to-date policy information, uh, and then we'll go down the path of, of, I guess, the more regulatory and um, compliance stream. How different would that be uh, in the digitization world versus the process now? Like, is it not the case that when I cancel my policy, my carrier informs motor vehicle and then the process unfolds from there? So, uh, again, I'm just trying to understand exactly how this is going to make life safer and better for insured and uninsured drivers on the roads. So is that not the process? If I cancel my policy with Johnson's today, they tell motor vehicle and then what happens? Yep. Oh, and then we're going to reach out to you and say, tell us your new insurance. And if you don't do that, then you get punished, essentially, and you'll you'll lose your registration. Um, and then you get the double punishment for no insurance and then no registration, and then you won't get a sticker, essentially. Um, and so the other things, though, that, that also put a downward pressure on auto insurance rates. Um, and so uninsured motorists are no longer able to access the uninsured automobile fund. Uh, so that change was made a few years ago uh, because there were so, you know, there were so many uninsured drivers pulling down on all these insurance policies. Um, before my time, we, they created this uh, uninsured automobile fund so that as an insured driver, if I got in an accident with an uninsured driver, then my costs would be covered. Um, but they all ultimately found that uninsured drivers were pulling from that fund as well. So we've changed that. So if you do not have insurance and you get in an accident, uh, there will be no coverage of any sort for you for anything um, if you're uninsured. Um, but it will protect, obviously, the insured drivers. So we, we've made that change. Uh, and then increasing the fines up to $4,000 for a first event. Um, so we, we are trying to, to crack down on uninsured drivers, which will uh, in, in, ideally long-term have a downward pressure on insurance rates or at least keep them from m- moving higher. 
Does this involve some sort of list that the RNC will flag drivers on? Because we know it to be true. We see the headlines all the time. Someone's pulled over and they have no registration, no insurance. They owe X amount of outstanding fines. So if they were willing to do it without a digital program in place, what's going to keep them from doing it with one in place? Uh, so I guess the extra step is that you can't register a vehicle. So um, up until now, you you could have been able to, to get through the cracks, you know, because we were not checking your policy numbers. Uh, we were not checking that you had an active insurance policy. But now we are double checking. And now the insurance companies have to tell us right away if you cancel. And then we are going to proactively follow up with you. Um, and if we know that there's a, this pool of people do not have insurance, then we'll work with law enforcement um, to go down that penalty route. Okay, let's move off to further conversation regarding digital ID. So I know if I, if I remember correctly in the news story was it's conceptual at this point and there's no real work has been done to create a digital ID. And I think the example you used was you go to the liquor store, you've been asked for proof of uh, being the age majority, and it comes with an awful lot of private information, say, for instance, on your government-issued driver's license, and as opposed to simply show a, a, a piece of identification that has a green check mark when scanned or what, however it's going to work. What's the need to go down that path? Because, you know, governments have proven, and this is not a slight necessarily on governments, but they are, will be the hub of activity for the hacker. You know, the big entities like Meditech and governments across the country and around the world have been trying to stave off of these hackers forever and a day. Are we now not all of a sudden putting it into one central location where it becomes even more at jeopardy because of someone willing to hack into my personal information? So why even go down this road? So um, I think that's an excellent question. And if, I guess if you step back, um, so this is kind of a, really the problem is if, if, uh, how do I prove who I am? And I wouldn't really call it digital ID. It's more of a digital credential. Um, and all provinces are looking at this along with the federal government. So how do I prove who I am and that the government says who I am and do that digitally? So if I was going to send you $20, I'd uh, probably send you electronic money transfer. If I was buying something from someone, I'd, I'd send a letter. Uh, an electronic money transfer, I wouldn't take a picture of a $20 bill and email it to them or text it to them. And, you know, that sounds ludicrous when you think about, of course, I wouldn't take a picture of a $20 bill and text it to someone or email it to someone. Um, But when you think about it, when you, people do transactions all the time, if you get a mortgage or a loan or um, a range of things, people are emailing, residents are emailing and taking pictures and scanning and emailing copies of their driver's licenses, their passports, a lot of really sensitive information um, is being, you know, emailed around to all kinds of companies and organizations. Um, and that is really the core problem we're looking at is how do I prove whether me as a person or maybe me as a business, um, if I if I was a business owner, how do I prove that I can do this thing that I'm trying to do and have that verification happen electronically without me having to take pictures of my passport and email it to someone, which, you know, now that I think about it, the more I think about it, it's ludicrous and that it seems so commonplace that people are doing that. Um, and so all the different provinces have, have are progressing at different speeds with parts of this. Um, and so, you know, we don't want to get left behind here in Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, in my experience, the, you know, the IT workers that we have here um, are really, really smart. We're able to solve problems that, that, that not everyone else can solve. Um, and so really thinking about how can we play a part in this puzzle that 
you know, in terms of the provinces and the federal government, we're trying to solve, like, how can we make this easier? Um, if there's a huge benefit for identity theft and fraud, we could potentially save if we crack this nut. Um, and so what we're thinking about conceptually uh, for a pilot for Newfoundland Labrador is age verification. Um, and that would be one small piece of the pie that Newfoundland Labrador could contribute to in terms of a Canadian overall digital credential system of an optional system of proving who I am uh, to whether the government, the, a private business, uh, someone else, rather than taking pictures of my personal information and emailing them and texting them to everyone, which is what happens today. That's really what we're, what we're trying to do. So would that digital ID be the home of all types of information, my MCP number, my social insurance number, my uh, date of birth, my driver's license status, and other pieces that people are so wanting to protect? You know, we give the advice all the time here. Don't give out any of that information to anybody that unprovoked sent you an email or a telephone call or what have you. So would that ID be the hub of all that personal information? So it's, we don't know yet. Like, this, a digital ID doesn't exist yet. This is, you know, different provinces are working on different components. Um, in terms, conceptually, in terms of the age verification, um, you know, we already have our, our motor registration, the information that we have about you from your driver's license and your government IDs. Um, and so we believe that there is, I believe that there is a way to use that to allow someone to prove their age to do an age verification transaction um, in a way that protects their privacy, that uh, is optional, completely optional, uh, gives them the flexibility to control what information you share, what information you don't share. Because, you know, as a government, we have that information today in our system. We're not changing that. Um, And again, this is just conceptual and this is just one piece of the pie that we're looking at right now. Um, But, you know, with all... It's too early to say what this looks like. We haven't, you know, in terms of the ministers of digital government, let's say, we have not yet figured out what that magic thing is going to look like. And right now we're just working on different chunks of it across the country. Okay, so... When it comes to, like, for instance, the financial institution information that I have, the bank gave it to me. The government-related numbers and uh, points of reference and ID points, the government gave to me. But what layer of liability comes with this move? Because, for instance, when the Meditech system was attacked by whoever, the government's response was to give you some free credit monitoring. But what happens if and when this becomes an easy go-to portal for my personal information versus having to go to this department, that department, that department, that department to get my personal info if we amalgamate? And I know this is conceptual, but at some point, privacy commissioners will talk about this. Liability will become a conversation. So do we not open ourselves up to a bit more online jeopardy than we would normally because you got to go to motor vehicle to get my driver's license number you got to go to the department of health to get my mcp number you got to go to the federal government to get my sin number so do we set ourselves up for a little bit more problematic versus efficiency and ease so uh, i certainly agree and understand with that uh, you know the kind of worry and i i I don't think that we would bring it all in one place. And we haven't gotten that far to say that we're going to take all those things and put them in one place because they exist right now in all kinds of different places, as you mentioned. Um, so right now there's, there's no kind of plan to consolidate all of that or anything. It's, and and may, we haven't done that analysis to say, you know, these 20 things that, you know, federal government information, provincial government information, we're not talking about, you know, just blanket bringing everything together. We're talking about, how can Canadians um, prove who they are for a specific purpose 
while transmitting as little data, data as possible as kind of a philosophy. So, you know, even the spirit of that, you know, when we get into the, the nitty gritty in the, the next few years, um, I can imagine that's certainly not going to involve, you know, taking all kinds of information from all different sources and bringing it together, because that would completely go against the spirit of what we're trying to do. I appreciate the time this morning, Minister. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Sarah Stoley. She's the Liberal member from Mount Sio, the Minister for Digital Government and Service NL. If there's anything we didn't get to and you think there's some follow-up required, I'm happy to do it. You send along your thoughts. But my favorite is when you pick up the phone and give us a call to talk about anything that's on your mind. Don't go away. Uh, welcome back to the show. Well, of course, there's always going to be immediate response, especially when speaking with an elected official, specifically those who sit in the cabinet positions. Look, the digital ID... You know, in some form, like I don't necessarily understand how exactly it's going to work positively, pragmatically speaking, regarding drivers who are willing to drive uninsured because we see it. So suppose I have a paper copy from Johnson's or a digital ID in my wallet that indicates whether or not I have insurance. My carrier has informed the motor vehicle department that I dropped my policy because then I guess I suppose it's up to the RNC to do something about it because the government can give you a call and say, hey, we know you don't have insurance. Can you please forward along your new information? But that doesn't mean that that person who already willfully cancel their insurance is not just going to immediately get behind the wheel and go about their business like they have in the past. So I don't really know exactly how it works. But some of the other concerns, for instance, look, actually, William wants to respond, and then I'll uh, offer my thoughts here in a second. Let's go back to line number one. William, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing? Not bad. Um, first time caller. Welcome to the um, show. Thank you. Um, I'll try to be quick. Um, first of all, um, in no direct offense to the minister, um, I don't know how to put it, I don't want to be offensive. Um, someone who replies and the way she was talking, it, it kind of seemed a bit, I am call it scatterbrained, almost. Um, almost like she's reading from a, a script. And not wanting them, I don't know, did, did you see that opinion yourself? Or? Well, I don't know. On the digital validation insurance program for auto insurance, maybe a little bit more concrete with what she had to say, given the fact that it's something that's actually happening and something that's coming, versus something that is absolutely simply just a concept at this moment. I didn't really follow a whole lot. I didn't follow along very clearly with the thoughts about the other digital ID. Uh, with the insurance one, a bit of a different kettle of fish, but I think when we talk about hypotheticals and what might come, it's hard to have really detailed answers to something that's not even a real thing at this moment in time. But I understand where you're coming from because the whole concept of digitizing stuff, the government has to make a case that's easy to understand, easy for us to understand why it's a good thing, how it can, can protect my private information, why it's going to make my life easier and better, as opposed to we just think it's a good idea because that's not good enough for people. That's kind of to my point. And the reason why it came up in my head and I wanted to call you is because this is a topic that you have been talking about now for a few days, yeah. maybe even since last week, and you were even saying you were hoping she was going to call in. And everyone listens to this show, and they had tons of time to prepare to talk to you. So I'm like, I don't see the, like, what was the point of her calling in to begin with? Like, she, like, the answers that 
even you were asking for weren't clear. And then what was clear from what I heard from her was more of her ideas of wanting to sell the digital ID. I'm actually just wondering your opinion as a as the person doing the show. Like, like how do you how do you feel about that when when you're asking these questions on behalf of the people and you give them lots of time and when they call back, like you don't get an answer. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, just so I understand the question. How do I feel about when I ask politicians uh, questions and don't get straight answers? Is that the basic summary of your question? I don't, it doesn't have to be politicians. Anyone in general. Like, like how, do you, how do you feel when like you're asking these questions on behalf of everyone mm-hmm. and they have lots of time to prepare concrete answers and then when you finally get them and you don't hear the concrete answers clearly like how, how does that make you feel? Frustrated. Okay. Yeah. Understood. I mean, I can only... This not to be defensive because I, I don't mind answering your question or anybody else's. But, of course, I can only ask the question. And a couple of the ones that I thought were the key questions, I asked them at least twice, just framed them differently. So I wish we would get... correct, Penny. And you, you do ask the questions, and you get them to call back, and you, you don't get the answers. And people call and get upset with you. No, 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 I'm not taking it personally. No, I'm not taking it personally at all. I wish that every question we asked, especially of politicians, had clear, concise, easy-to-understand answers that really got down to the nitty-gritty. I mean, we do know there's always going to be some tap dancing and sidestepping regarding answering a question as as a politician, even more so when we're talking about something that is a concept versus a reality. But look, if you want to ask me that question directly... I get frustrated, and I wish it was different. And I can ask the same question two or three times and get very similar answers. But And if someone thinks that there's a better way for me to approach it, I'm happy to do it because my interest is to get details. My interest is to get answers, not just to be here for the sake of occupying space. I don't think you can approach it in another way. I don't know if people realize that a lot of the frustration that you hear on the show and everyone that listens to it, People get frustrated because of things like that, right? And no offense to her, now she called in. Like at least she called back and answered questions somewhat. But when people are thinking about are they doing this for other reasons that we don't know about in regards to the digital ID, right? You know, you're asking for concrete questions, and and when I listen to that. That sounded to me like a sales pitch for the digital ID, more so than specifically the insurance side of it, right? Because the, like what what she said in regards to the insurance about we're doing it because um, the motor registration thing, when you put your registration in and you have to enter your insurance if you weren't checking it before, if that's the justification for it, then that that has nothing to do with a digital ID. So when people are thinking about it and they're thinking they're trying to introduce a digital ID for other reasons that may not be in their benefit, if they're thinking that way, when they call back to you and those are the answers you get, 
then it's it's hard not to to see why people think that way. I I don't know I don't know how to put it, but maybe you can put it in better words what I'm trying to say. Do you know what I mean? I think so. Yeah. So I don't know. I I, I don't like hearing people get upset for no reason. Like sometimes they're. They get upset just because they they want to. But well, for I, some people, being upset is their fuel. That's, I, I, that's I know, I know, Patty. And you can't you can't do things with people like that, right? But when you know, sometimes you get an opportunity to answer questions, and maybe there'll be less people upset. But. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't know. I, I think you know what I mean. I just—I do. Yeah. It, it's just her decline. But anyway, if anyone's listening and they think that you're not asking the questions, I, I don't know. It seems to me like you're asking it. You just—I'm giving my best shot. I mean, look. Yeah. I'm always going to get emails and stuff about the narrative and people tell you what you can and cannot say. All of which is nonsense. I haven't talked to my boss. For instance, I couldn't pick someone out of, from Stingray out of a lineup. So all of that stuff is foolishness. We're not afraid to talk about whatever. I don't care if it's adverse reactions to vaccines, digital IDs, uh, any government policy under the sun. If people want to talk about it, we can do it on this show. Come hell or high water. Yeah, I know. Anyway, my, my opinion on the call, um, it's good that people call back and answer your questions, especially politicians. That's a good thing about this show. But my personal opinion, that just sounded like a sales pitch for something else. Well, unless the sales pitch comes in a bit more detail, no one's buying. Well, you know what I mean. I know what you mean, buddy. Appreciate the call this morning, William. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. You're you're welcome. You too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, there's a caller there who wants to talk about conflict of interest in municipal politics. That's a good one. And then after that, well, it's up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yeah. What I'm calling about about the new bylaws of Municipalities Act, a bit of conflict of interest. Okay. Well, what it is, I'm on a town council in a, in a, in a town. And if something is coming up that we got to vote on it now, and it would be four people in conflict with there's seven people on council, and you got to have four to pass the vote, right? Yeah, you need the quorum, yeah. Yeah. So, but what it is, there's a lot of people, and like you said before, and I think Conception Bay had a case go to court, go to court because it was some councillors he dismissed from council. I know this is there somewhere that I read it. There's one of the towns up there anyway, that way, right? Yeah. And they won their case, and they were restated back in council. But like you said before, most everybody in every community or town is related anyway, right? Well, conflict of interest at the municipal level are always going to be in play. And for the most part, a lot of it's going to be about real estate matters. The smaller the town, the more conflicts they're going to see. Yes. But that's what's what's going to happen now. And and then it's making a lot of people upset and everything else. But if you can't vote on that motion or whatever, but I think at the time they went to court, they were reinstated. Because the, at the time, the judge wasn't told them. Everybody in every town and every community, there's only small places and everybody's related. 
again, you know, there's a couple examples come to mind very quickly about real estate regarding, uh, or pardon me, conflicts regarding real estate, where yeah. in small towns, inevitably some councillor or more than one councillor or the mayor or the deputy mayor is going to have some sort of business relationship or personal relationship with one of the parties involved. It's kind of unavoidable. Yeah. You know, what the real trick is, is for councillors to get the type of training they need on conflict of interest so that they can recuse themselves from the first application on. That's it. The first mention of it, then out they go. No conversation, not involved in deliberations, not in the room, in the council chambers when the discussions are happening. But far too often what happens is there's a racket about conflict of interest after the fact. After we've had all the public debates and, and uh, uh, conversations inside council chambers. So, you know, if you know you're in conflict, get out right away. First thing. You're doing the right thing for yourself and your municipality. Yeah. Well, well, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know what other three people are going to do, but like I say, I does a lot of reading up. I've been on t on the talk show last week about Indian Jesus appears, and I guess you got a copy of that letter. I do somewhere, yeah. Yeah, but I'm I'm the same person, and I, I'm involved. Okay. I'm being conflict plus three more people, but as soon as it's brought up, up to the meeting, I'm just going to leave, excuse myself, and walk out. It's the only it's the only way to handle it. Yes, yeah, the only way to handle it because I don't want getting get in conflict because when a family's not involved and then there's brothers and sisters net and points and everything else, and it's it's not worth it. It's better better to walk and leave it alone. If it can't be passed, it can't be passed. But I, today I'm looking into it with municipal affairs, see what kind of answer we get. I know it's a case by the court and the people that was dismissed from council was brought back in. But regards to that, we'll find out. Can three people pass it or whatever because it's four people there and they got somebody either involved or related to it, right? Yeah, and that's the problem. If the conflict is so widespread inside the chambers, then you might not have the quorum voting on one issue or another to give it a legitimate pass or rejection. Do you need to go to the department or is there some guidance you can possibly get as well from MNL? Because they might be a bit more nimble and quick to um, react. But, but what we are, we're getting all the municipalities, Newfoundland, Labrador today to get answer on to it or whatever, right? Okay. So we, uh, I got, like I told you the other day, I works on stuff, and I started on all this this morning because I was discussions yesterday with somebody in Rouse and that, and it's not worth it, and it's getting everybody upset. It's causing a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing quite like either undisclosed and or apparent conflicts to build a wedge inside one councillor or another. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we even see it in the big cities, right? I mean, there's conflicts that rear their head here in the city of St. John's. If you have people, and this is not giving them a knock on what they do for a full-time living, oh. but if you're involved in real estate and there's yeah. real estate questions or zoning questions regarding something that you do have as that listing or may have in the future, that's a conflict yeah. that's pending. So I think yeah. we kind of mishandle some of those issues even in the biggest city yeah. in the province, right here in St. John's. That's right, sir. Yeah, tricky. Well, we we got to make a vote on that this week or whatever. And there were some people got emails. I never had my email address put in, but I phoned the person that had it put on, and, and he was explaining it to me and everything else. I said, I know I'm in conflict, so when somebody brings a letter to the meeting or whatever, I know what it's all involved about. I've just excused myself from walking out the meeting. And if the other, whoever else is involved, if he wants to walk up, that's up there yourself, right? Fair enough. I appreciate the call here this morning. And if you don't mind, if you want to resend that letter so I can put it in a file, because I just clicked open that file, I don't see it. But Yeah, well, well what I will do, Peel, uh, Patty, I will send it in to you again. I appreciate that. And I also got to answer right away that day, because remember, I told you I'm not going to stop at nothing. <laughs> no. 
nor should and you. That e- and that <laughs> evening, I went. I got in contact with this person. This young lady went to school with my with my young father, and she said, "I know a few contacts." And when I got home in the house that evening, I went on to put something in the house, and the phone rang, and this was this guy. He said, "Well, this guy wouldn't be in for." answer until today and he's getting back to me today if I don't, he don't get back to me but uh, apparently and uh, sometime in December I was 118 that was put out because of the point system was put back in and he said yours could be overlooked or something right yep understood so so like I say like I told you that day I was where I was going I went everywhere I got it done I've been phoning out a while for six months I never got no answer and one day I got an answer <laughs> Well, dog got a bone. Sometimes that's what you got to be. Well, by just the way it is, I'm not. I'm not like I told you that day when I was, was talking to you. I was. I'm not a quitter. Well, I appreciate you making time for the show again this morning. Keep it up and resend that letter if you don't mind. I, I will, sir. I don't mind doing doing anything. You've got a good show here, and I listen to it all the time. And and it's a good thing that people got you to call with their problems or whatever and find out what they could do. We'll see what we can do. Appreciate this. Stay in touch. Okay, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, the whole conflict of interest thing. I mean, there's some pretty notable stories that uh, I can recall just in the very recent past about what conflicts look like inside council chambers. But that's an interesting predicament when you arrive at a point, for instance, let's say you got a council of seven members and four find themselves in conflict, leaving only three voting members, whether or not that's enough for the legitimacy of rejection and or the acceptance of an application, let's just say real estate, for instance, because that's where it gets, I think, the trickiest. And no question, the smaller the town, the heightened likelihood of conflicts. Because you know the old sayings, right? You know, I live in a small town, everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. At some point, Conflicts don't need to be so severe that they're so blatantly obvious because they can be a little less so because me and a personal relationship and or a past or current business relationship can muddy the waters. And so how you deal with that realistically, of course, I guess the best place to get the guidance is directly from the department. Of course it is because they can be the be-all and end-all, the arbiter of what's acceptable and what's not, what constitutes an uh, adequate approach versus the lack of quorum. Let's go ahead and take our final break of the morning. When we come back, the topic is entirely up to you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, of course, uh, this happens every day, and fair enough. If there's something that you saw in the news or think you should see in the news and it wasn't brought forward on this program, I'm happy to bring it up if you plant the seed because I don't know what people want to talk about. But this is regarding an issue, an incident, over the weekend that, to be honest, I can't really make heads or tails of. It's obviously a tragic outcome, and this is what happened out in Campbellton. So there was a report of a single vehicle crash, and then a home invasion along the main stretch there, Route 340, I think it is, uh, out in that community. So the crash happened. Someone came to the door, got in in a home invasion, assaulted the homeowner. The homeowner got away, ran to get some help. Upon return finds that the car, there's a car in the driveway that's on fire. The second floor of the home is engulfed in flames. And when the firefighters put out both fires, they find that there's someone dead upstairs. The person that they find dead is not a resident of the home. So the investigation into all sorts of different fas- factors here, the crash, the home invasion, the fires, and the death, I, I'm happy to talk about it, but be honest with you, I don't even know what to say about it. 
it is such a sad, bizarre, tragic story that the details and particulars about who is involved and what actually happened, I just don't know. But it sounds like a pretty dodgy situation where I guess we're going to have to wait for the outcome of the investigation. That's not to slough it off to some other entity or a firm and full and only relying on uh, law enforcement. But I didn't speak to it because I don't even know what to say about it. It's such a, as I said, sad, bizarre story. Let's go to line number one. Sharon, you're on the air. Hi, Paddy. Hi, yeah. Um, I just wanted to call to clarify something for the station. Um, you had a caller there last, my brother Randy Troken, but you had a caller there last week said that uh, the media had put out um, the, um, the Randy's death before the family knew. And I wanted to clarify that all the family knew before that came out in the media, in defense of the media, because, I mean, we needed the media when we needed them. So in defense of the media, um, everybody knew before it went out on the news. Well, that's a good thing. That's the way it should be, Sharon. First off, yes. I'm sorry for your loss, because I know there's Thank been you. a lot of loss. Yes, inside the Druken family. You know, the media, by and large, as much as people love to hate the media, putting out that type of information is not done until we're told officially by law enforcement that family next to kin, all of that has been taken care of. That's right. And on this front, sometimes you get the rumbles on social media where someone heard that someone passed away, in this case heard that Randy Druken passed away, but media is pretty careful with that stuff because sure, it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a bad look and you can get yourself in all kinds of trouble when you're putting out info that you haven't had verified through law enforcement and law enforcement won't even tell you about it until they've informed the next kin yes but no no i just want like i said i always want to defend uh, the media because i don't listen to you i listen to you eight o'clock at night and that's when i heard it so i said when i get around i had to clarify it so that's it patty yeah listen uh, sharon i'm glad that you uh, call with that many people will just let that slide so i really do appreciate that but Randy's loss is a tough one. I mean, let me remember some of the numbers. Does he have as many as eight grandchildren, albeit only a man of 57 years of age? Uh, well, they're, well, they're not his. His uh, uh, well, he brought, he brought him up, I guess you could say, at that rain. Okay. Yeah. The Druken family, you know, let's talk about the media for a second, and I'll let you go whenever you're ready, Sharon. Is when you have a, a family where the, the the surname jumps off the headlines, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. People yes. know the Drokens. They do. Yes. For yes. the good, bad, and the indifferent, whether it be Randy or Paul or Jody or Derek or yourself, when, yeah. when the media has covered your family, do you think the people have been fair? Do you think that there's maybe other sides of the story have been left out because it's been so sensational to talk about some of the Drokens boys in particular? No, I think, well, I mean, I've everything I've ever heard, like was, like from the media, and there's no negativity. But, uh, you know, I mean, like that, that bothered me to say, you know, the family didn't know, because I was the one that notified the family, right? Okay, yeah. So, but no, no, we've been treated well. I can't see any, any wrongdoings or anything, I mean, but the name is out there and that's it, you know? Do we know what happened? Uh, well, uh, they said a, a heart attack. That's what the. Uh, but I, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure. This is just somebody said. But I'm going to find out for sure anyway. I know he did have a bad heart, but um, uh, I'm going to find out for sure. <laughs> I, I, I don't like being on the radio. Okay, well that that's fine. I'm glad you called with that bit of clarification because that's important. Because if we it get is, it yeah. so horribly wrong that we report, imagine if someone belonged to the family found out about Randy's death from me versus the proper sources, which would be law enforcement and or family members like yourself. So I'm glad that's the way it worked out. Okay. Thank you, Patty. I'm sorry for your loss, Sharon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. Yeah, that's, that's tricky stuff, right? Same thing when we get down to how the media handles 
you know the fundamentals accidents and the like because it's i would imagine the decisions made at the editorial level or program directors newsroom directors they're just not that simple so i hear it all the time and fair enough your feedback is most welcome here on this show whether it be about how our newsroom handles things and or how i handle things but when it comes to things like for instance uh, auto accidents you know inevitably and this happens at least every single once a week every single week there will be some coverage of one accident or another. Whether or not it ends in a tragedy or not, it's the photographs that are published, maybe with some license plate numbers available, maybe possibly before everyone is told of the circumstance surrounding the accident, whether it be family members or otherwise. You know, because, you know, it's the rubbernecker kind of thing, right? People drive by an accident and they can't help but look. The whole thought and the concept, which may or may not be fair this day and age, but the, the phrase that if it bleeds, it leads. Because people are interested in those types of stories, for better or worse. It's a bit, a bit morbid, but it's exactly how people behave. I mean, you know it to be true. If you get stuck in a line of traffic, as soon as you arrive at the accident that caused the delay, you can't help but look. You know, whether it be curiosity and or with sadness and or hope to see a positive outcome, it's just one of those things. So when the media decides, well, here's how we're going to cover this particular story. Here's how we're going to cover it. And I can't speak for newspapers and actual newsrooms because I'm not involved with either, right? We have a very separate and, I would suggest, unique uh, format here to talk about those issues of the day. So whether you think that the media does a good job or bad job, that opinion is fair enough. And we can always talk about it. But I'm telling you, in no uncertain terms, at least once a week, every single week, there are emailers that will say that they're disappointed or disgusted with the way that one outlet or another has posted a picture of an accident or whatever under the sun. Anyway, that's interesting stuff. We're on the Twitter box. Sometimes that's even half interesting. We're, we're VOC Mobile Line. You know what to do. You can follow us there. Lots of back and forths about the service dog and therapy dog, and also as it pertains to digital ID. And this is from Aaron. He says, don't we already have a sort of digital ID if you travel internationally these days or get on a plane a lot happens automatically. If we scan our passports or use the ArriveCAN app or the U.S.'s equivalent, seems like this could be convenient for government forms. In some applications, it absolutely is. Like the ArriveCAN app, it had some glitches with sending out emails saying that you have to isolate or what have you, but it's absolutely zero difference between that and the declaration you make on your paper customs declaration, which inevitably, upon receipt, gets digitized and put in their own database. So you're right, some of those... Things are, are already in play. But the controversies surrounding uh, government's uh, application and how they hold your information, how they disseminate it and share your information, that's where the controversy gets a little bit larger. We're, our email address is openlineofvocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.